from the past. Please listen carefully. Coco. Welcome to the Coco Crew Podcast. A delicious adventure into the world of retro computing news and information. Featuring the Tandy Color Computer. Got your Coco Three yet? Coco. All right, all right, all right. Welcome, Coco Cruisers. Uh, this is uh, Coco Group Podcast, Episode Thirty Two. Uh, we're here with the the normal crew plus Boise. We, maybe we have to make Boise part of the normal crew. We keep saying that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mike, Neil, Boise, hello all. How is everyone? Doing good. Doing good. Very good. Very cold. good. Yeah, it is cold a bit cold. And snowy everywhere. Yeah, we're covered in snow here. Uh, I don't think my kids have had a full week of school all of this January. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just uh, gives them more cocoa time. Well, yeah, they don't enjoy the cocoa time except for the kind that comes that's brown and liquid in a hot mug. <laughs> <laughs> um, hot cocoa. Anyway, well. Let's see. Well, so um, let's see. It is now January of uh, 2018. Um, Tandy Assembly is roughly nine months away. So if you want to deliver a baby at Tandy Assembly, you better get started. <laughs> Start the. <to play. laughs> um, at least everyone, you go. You got as much practice in as you can. I recommend that. <laughs> um, of course, that means Cocoa Fest is uh, only about three months away. Very exciting stuff. Everyone getting ready for Cocoa Fest? Locked and loaded. Yeah, well, hard as we can go. Yeah, I'm still in the same perpetual state, but I am making a little progress uh, behind the scenes maybe. So um, (laughs) maybe I'll at least uh, get a a clear plate for the the schedules uh, or projects after Cocoa Fest. (laughs) 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 How about you, you Neil? Oh, go ahead, Boise. I was going to say – you know, after my initial thought that I wasn't going and was able to uh, get out of the uh, the uh, prior event that I had committed to, uh, I've already got my tickets made and hotel reservations and uh, transportation set. I don't think I've ever been this early in having that done for Cocoa Fest before. Yeah, yeah. I uh, uh, need to make the, uh, the hotel reservations, but I, um, I need to... Uh, to reserve my vacation time at work, I guess. But other than that, I think I'm uh, <laughs> pretty much on to, on schedule, um, uh, unless I decide to fly instead of drive. Well, I guess maybe I just don't know what I'm talking about. But I did send in my vendor form for um, uh, for the the Glenside folks, so at least there's that. How about you, Neil? You uh, getting ready for Cargo Fest? Well, I'm I'm getting ready, getting some projects ready, and. Uh... I do have to send my vendor form in, though, so I, thanks for the reminder to get that Yep. Done. Yep. Anyway, it's on the way. It's coming. I was uh, trying to not be quite as involved in the planning this year as I have been in the past couple of years because I kind of get worked up over it. <laughs> but uh, uh, kind of got dragged back in again this year, so I'll at least be involved with the uh, some of the scheduling and stuff. But um, hopefully it'll still be enjoyable. Um, I'm sure Cocoa Fest will still be enjoyable. It's, um, 
you know, my bits that'll hopefully still be enjoyable. <laughs> anyway, so everyone's got their projects underway. Anything anyone want to share? No, not really. All right, we'll keep them secret. Um, I'm, um, I'm I'm working on uh, uh, adapting uh, the music in Farfall to uh, the hardware on the Game Master cartridge. I've been building Game Master cartridges and sending them out uh, to uh, developers um, around the world. I've sent several uh, overseas and uh, hoping to see some uh, some output from that. People have some cool projects. And of course, uh, people can work on projects for the Game Master cartridge using uh, the main emulator as well. So who knows who might have a surprise there. Anyway, what about uh, eBay or other acquisitions? Anybody buy anything cool lately? I actually did. And today, I, I almost uh, I was going to say I had nothing this month, but uh, I do. What's um, I got a Tandy 3200. So that's very oh. close to a uh, Tandy Sensation. Oh, yeah. It's a 486 um, SX33 in there. <laughs> See if it's cool. upgradable. All right. So pretty close to the complete set then. <laughs> <laughs> the Tandys, maybe. Well, close enough anyway. Maybe we can get enough power on there to emulate a cocoa on it. Cool. I think I may have mentioned in the earlier episode that I had acquired uh, a, uh, a Matra Alice 32, which was a follow-on to the Matra Alice. The Matra Alice, of course, being the clone or of the MC-10. And um, I'm not sure. If, I don't think I've had a chance to mention that I had also picked up an original Matra Alice. And then more recently, I also picked up a Ma- Alice 90. <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm master of the set of Matra Alice machines. I just need to learn how to pro- how to program in French. <laughs> <laughs> you gonna bring any of those to Coco Fest? Um, I don't know. Uh, I might. A couple of them have these pretty cool plastic cases with foam cutouts. What they look like a sniper rifle. <laughs> <laughs> I guess um, you can't fly then. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> I might have to bring the manuals, let uh, Boise translate them for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'd be cool to see one of those. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to see yeah, them, too. They are kind of cool. But, yeah, I have uh, one of them has the original, like, cardboard box, too. It's pretty cool. Some awesome. neat artwork on there. And oh, also, uh, in that, along with one of those, I picked up the um, the joystick port, uh, joystick adapter for the uh, the Alice uh, which the Alice had, but the MC10 didn't have. Anyway, it plugs in on the expansion cord on the expansion port on the Alice, and it gives you two nine-pin, you know, Atari-style joysticks. The only downside is that since it takes that slot, you have to play a game in 4K. <laughs> um, so it kind of limits its abilities there. But when kind of looking at it, see if it might be worth something to try to reproduce, possibly in conjunction with a. a um, memory upgrade in the same package which would be uh, kind of the perfect combination that'd be great but you know no (laughs) (laughs) pre-announcements anyway anyone else have any cool acquisitions or projects you want to talk about yeah i got this uh this cool game master card (laughs) cool that was my acquisition uh and also i should just put out there uh i ran out of the uh the super pack proto boards, but I've got a new shipment in. So awesome. If anybody's looking for those, I'm restocked and I'll, I'll have some at Coco Fest, of course. I was shilling for you today on those. <laughs> I saw that. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. 
Well, that's probably enough to get us going here. So um, why don't we uh, take a short break, hear from our sponsors, and then we'll be back with some announcements. My son just made the hockey team. My Jane just had her first recital. That's nothing. My kid can program a computer. Parents, invest in your child's future for just $59.95. Send your child to Radio Shack Computer Camp. Courses are just two hours a day for five days. Each child is provided with their own computer. It's a fun learning experience. Space is limited, so sign up today. Get the details at any Radio Shack Computer Center. All right, welcome back, Coco Cruisers. Now it's time for some announcements. Uh, you are listening to the Coco Crew Podcast. We are available through Twitter uh, as at Coco Crew Podcast. That's all one word, C-O-C-O-C-R-E-W-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. <laughs> we are also available on Facebook. We have a group called The Space Coco Space Crew Space Podcast because, you know, we like spaces. Um Anyway, feel free to reach out and talk to us either of those ways through social media. Um, we'd love to hear from you. We are, of course, available on iTunes for downloading as well as uh, Google Play. And, of course, we're available for streaming through Stitcher and through the service TuneIn, which is the service used by the Amazon Echo. <laughs> we should make our, our uh, regular joke here about uh, Alexa Play Coco Podcast. Um <laughs> But it plays into something later in the podcast. So, <laughs> anyway, um, we are, of course, a member of the Throwback Network. The Throwback Network is a collection of uh, retro-themed podcasts, many of which are technology or computing-oriented or gaming-oriented, some of which are 80s culture or other just cool old stuff. So if you're looking for another podcast for your listening pleasure, and then we recommend you check out the Throwback Network. Similarly, similar, similarly, <laughs> we are listed on the Game by Game Podcast Information Hub. This is another collection of retro-themed podcasts, although these are all related to uh, home computers and gaming. So again, if you're looking for uh, a, a, another way to spend some time listening to podcasts and your interests run towards the technical or the game-oriented uh, subjects, then we recommend you check out the Game by Game Podcast Information Hub. Audio for the Coco Crew Podcast is hosted by Cyber Ears. If you have a need to host audio programming on the Internet, uh, whether you're a church or a radio station or a business, or I have no idea why you might need there, but if you do, we recommend you check out Cyber Ears where you can get your audio on your terms. Should you wish to reach uh, the the hosts or the of, of the Coco Crew podcast. We have some emails set up available for that. The first few will reach all of the hosts on the Coco Crew. Uh, we have show s h o w at cococrew.org, podcast p o d c a s t at cococrew.org, and feedback f e e d b a c k at cococrew.org. If instead you wish to reach specifically one host or another, then I'm available as John, J-O-H-N, at CocoCrew.org. Neil is available as Neil, N-E-I-L, at CocoCrew.org. Mike is available as Mike, M-I-K-E, at CocoCrew.org. And, of course, I'm pretty sure I've set up now Boise, B-O-I-S-Y, at CocoCrew.org. <laughs> so come if you want to send us an email, have at it. We'll be happy to get it. 
those are our usual announcements. I've got a few kind of special ones in here. Um, if you check the show notes, they are represented with links to email messages. I have a couple of the Cocoa Fest 2018 call for vendors slash exhibitors and attendees too. Basically asking for everyone that's planning to come to Cocoa Fest to let uh, to let me know so I can update the website with your information. Uh, of course, you also need to, um, if you're coming as a vendor, you need to send in your forms so that the Glenside Club knows that you're coming. Let's see, also asking for presentations. If you want to present at Cocoa, at Cocoa Fest, then please let me know so that we can get you listed or get you scheduled. Right now, there's only one open speaking slot. There's a couple of people who've expressed some interest, but nobody's quite seized the moment to uh, <laughs> to, to claim that the spot. So we're holding it open for now. Anyway, if you want a spot, let me know. We'll see what we can do. Even if we run out, we'll maybe try to figure something out later. And, of course, we have a new one here, the call for papers for the 27th annual Last Chicago Coca Fest. This is something a little new. Boise, this is your announcement. Um, why don't you explain your call for papers? Yeah, so um, I had an idea about doing this some time back. The idea was that maybe we could add a bit of formality to the yearly event by having what I would call a quasi-academic aspect to it where people could sit down, write their thoughts about new ideas, new hardware, new software, or maybe improving on existing products or processes or tools or anything and codify that in a, in a document. So that's kind of the idea behind the call for papers. It's to kind of bring together, uh, I guess, a think tank of people in the community to discuss these things and formalize them in documents. And maybe if we had get in a participation, we could um, put them inside of a journal or make them available online. So uh, pretty excited about it. Cool, very exciting. So, um, yeah, so are you hoping to uh, do... Uh, solve problems or are you hoping to uh, put together project groups or all or neither think, or something? I between? think a little bit of both. I, I think that we could have some some problem solving or some new way of thinking or expressing an idea or software product for the community. Uh, it would also be a good place to kind of hopefully, uh, you know, spring up some ideas for people to collaborate together. Uh, everybody tends to kind of do their own thing, so maybe it would be nice to uh, use this as a process to bring some people together cool well very exciting sounds like a, a lot of potential there hopefully we'll get some uh, people to participate i know we've got some pretty bright people in the community some uh, of which have some impressive academic backgrounds um and so it'd be nice to see what can come of this yep definitely thank you very exciting all right well, with those under our belt about Cocoa Fest, why don't we uh, move on to our announcements of upcoming events that may be of interest to our listeners. Let's see, coming up, this is still coming here in February 10th through 11th, 2018, uh, VCF Pacific Northwest, this vintage computer festival uh, held at the Living Computer Museum and Labs in Seattle, Washington. Again, that's February 10th and 11th. That's a, sounds like a cool museum. I've never been there, but uh, by all accounts, a cool place to be. And uh, we certainly know the VCF folks that put on good shows. Um, so if you're in the Pacific Northwest region of the United States and have an interest in vintage computing, I would highly recommend that you get to this show. It should be a good time. All right, on the other side of the country, closer to me, uh, February 17th and 18th, so that's a week later, the Playthrough Gaming Convention 2018. 
and that is held at the Raleigh Convention Center here in, uh, well, not here, but close by in Raleigh, North Carolina. <laughs> Looks like a, a kind of a fun event, uh, different kind of pictures. They show um, one that looks like a bunch of PCs set up like a LAN party. Uh, some of the pictures show uh, arcade machines or whatever. They have people in cosplay. They have people playing board games and card games and whatever. So it's definitely about the gaming, not all about technology gaming. Some of it's, uh, you know, low-tech <laughs> uh, cards and board games and stuff. But I don't know. I mean, it looks like a fun event. Um, and uh, I wish I knew somebody had been. Uh, I probably do, but haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> anyway, uh, looks like a cool event. So that's February 17th, 18th, Raleigh, North Carolina, Playthrough Gaming Convention 2018. All right, coming up after that, the big event. This is uh, Neil's New Year's, uh, <laughs> Coco New Year's. The, right. the 27th annual last Chicago Coco Fest. Why do they call it the last? Because they never know if there's going to be another one. <laughs> this is held at the Heron Point Convention Center in Lombard, Illinois, where you have the opportunity to touch the Heron. <laughs> April 21st and 22nd of 2018. Ah! <laughs> like somebody touched the Heron there. That's right. I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a big event. Uh, it's uh, our Cocoa Mecca. Uh, this is, um, you know, this is where we all touch base and uh, keep in contact and, and um, reset and then uh, have our new year. Uh, so definitely a cool event. Be sure to come and check it out. Uh, I know we're all planning to be there, maybe even planning on spending an extra day or two. It's, uh, of course, in the Chicago area, so there's uh, a lot of potential attraction, attractions to visit if you're in, uh, if you want to go to the Chicago area. Um, including the um, Galloping Ghost Arcade <laughs> and uh, some good steakhouses. Can't say enough. This is the uh, the reason why this podcast exists is for Cocoa Fest and to promote it. So come, in and come on out and see. We'd love to break another attendance record like we've been doing. Love to see 100 people under the, under the, uh, uh, under the roof there. And, uh, blow the doors you know, off the place. Yeah, blow the doors off. So uh, come on out. Let us know you're coming, but come on out. There's three elevators, no waiting. There are three elevators. <laughs> there might be some waiting, but no. <laughs> All right. Now, in a brilliant move of hitting the exact same date for a similar event somewhere else in the country, the Vintage Computer Festival Southeast folks have scheduled their event this year for April 21st and 22nd, 2018, and the same exact weekend as Cocoa Fest. That's very disappointing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we go to that. <laughs> it's been an event we've tended to go to, or at least try to attend. Uh, events in uh, Roswell, Georgia, which is in the uh, greater Atlanta area. Pretty good event. Um, it has some good speakers, uh, good turnout, some uh, decent um, flea market style opportunities, or nothing else, good opportunities to pick up weird t-shirts for people to ask you about. <laughs> um, anyway, um, sorry that uh, they've chosen the date that overlaps to Cocoa Fest, so I'm not going to be able to make that. But if for some reason you can't make it to Chicago, but you can make it to Atlanta, well, at least you've got something you can do on that weekend. So, VCF Southeast, uh, April 21st, 22nd, 2018. 
the following weekend, April 28, 2018, the um, uh, the fourth uh, Encontro Club of Color Rio. <laughs> Just found out about this this week. Um, this is again our Brazilian friends. They're having their their equivalent to Coco Fest, um, April 28th, uh, in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. So looks like a cool event. Uh, I'm sure it'll be fun if you're you know. If you're hanging out in Rio and you're bored, you know, you might want to try to find the place and hang out. Because I hear there's not a lot to do in Rio. But <laughs> um, anyway, <laughs> anyway, you may check the place out. Um, it should be fun. And uh, so we certainly wish our Brazilian friends uh, some fun there at their, at their uh, Club of Color Rio event. <laughs> All right, uh, May the 18th, May 18th to 20th, 2018. This is a uh, VCF East in uh, in New Jersey. Um, this is uh, in Wall, New Jersey. These are the Vintage Community folks, um, and uh, it's a pretty good event. Traditionally, it's been about a month earlier, so has some conflict, uh, either not usually directly with Coco Fest, but sometimes the week before or the week after, making it a little tough to get to, uh, or at least tough to go to both. This year, it'll be a little easier to go to both uh, if you, uh, if, uh, since it's being held another, a month later. Uh, looks like they're sticking to their this formula they've been holding where they have Friday classes. Looks like maybe they have a keynote address on Friday, so that's a little bit different. And then Saturday, uh, keynotes and, and exhibit halls. And Sunday, uh, keynotes and exhibit hall. And their museum's open on Saturday and Sunday. Pretty good event. Uh, have we all been to this one? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so pretty good event. I think we all have enjoyed that. Um, the couch. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, we got to see the uh, Enigma. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very that's good right. show. Very good show. Very good. If you're in the New Jersey or northeastern part of the United States um, in uh, late May and looking for a vintage computing event, well, this is probably your best ticket. <laughs> are, are any of you guys going to that one this year? It's on my maybe list. Yeah, I've rated a maybe. I don't know. I've kind of have not enjoyed travel as much lately, so uh, <laughs> we'll just see how I'm feeling about travel. All right, one more event on the calendar here. This is uh, July 16th to the 22nd, uh, 2018. This, of course, is Kansas Fest 2018. This is an Apple II event uh, held at uh, Rockhurst University in uh, Kansas City, Missouri. You stay in the dorms with your fellow retro uh, enthusiasts (laughs) and uh, spend all your days talking and playing with Apple II stuff. It's a cool event. I wish it was cocoa and not apple, but other than that, uh, a pretty fun event, and the, the technical content is actually surprisingly good. I would rate it highly recommended. So there you go. There's our, our schedule of events uh, as of January 2018. <laughs> There's plenty of stuff to do, at least through the first half of the year. All right, well, that covers our announcements, and so I guess we're going to have to take another little break, and then we'll be back with some news. If you sell color computers on eBay, you know that competition is fierce. So how can you differentiate your eBay listing and get top dollar for your items? It's easy with the New York Times Asset Tag System. 
These self-adhesive aluminum asset tags affix easily to any vintage computer item and instantly add value and provenance. Each attractive asset tag features the New York Times Eagle logo and a blank equipment number box. The Coco 2 usually sells for $70 on eBay, but with the addition of the New York Times asset tag, the exact same Coco 2 becomes a rare item and lists for $150. An original color computer analog joystick usually sells for $20 on eBay, but with the addition of the New York Times asset tag, the price instantly jumps to $80. Do you have mysterious, undocumented, or non-working cartridges just collecting dust? Turn those items into cash by attaching the New York Times asset tags. I put an NYT tag on an old Coco 2 and listed it on eBay with an undocumented mysterious pack. Together, they're listed for $299. The New York Times asset tag system includes 15 self-adhesive blank asset tags and our 10-page booklet with tips for maximizing your eBay profits. Start making more money today. Here's how to get yours. Maximize your eBay sales with a New York Times asset system. Just $29.95. Call in the next 10 minutes and receive a second New York Times asset system for just an additional $10. Call 100-0100. That number again is 100-0100. Operators are standing by. All right. Well, now we're back with some news. Let's see. We have um, maybe a little bit longer than usual news segment this time. We'll see. Uh, some of them are somewhere, so maybe it'll collapse down a little bit. I don't know. Why don't we just get started? <laughs> so the first one on the uh, uh, docket here, it's a YouTube video from uh, Rogelio Perea. Rogelio Perea. I think that's right. <laughs> At least it's close enough this way I've heard it, I've heard it pronounced. Um, I'll let you take the bullet on those. I'll take that I know you know how to find me. Tell me if I'm saying it wrong. Um, so, subject of his video, Tandy 200, that's a terminal for OS 9 Level 2. So, pretty cool. Nice little combo of retro uh, computing uh, equipment to doing a... The task um, is one of the beauties of OS 9 is that it is um, multitasking and multi-user, so you can have logins from from different terminals and that sort of thing. And so here he's using a Tandy 200 for just that. Um, nice little proof of uh, capability or whatever. Very cool. Any, any of you guys ever run terminal stuff for your OS 9? Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. Yeah. Yep. I used yeah. to run uh, I used to run Dynacalc on a VT220. <laughs> in college, when I was younger, I had a my Coco 3 with one of those four-port RS-232 packs. They call them the COM4s. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I was running, like, I think two Wise terminals. And I'm <laughs> Fun I'm stuff. Screaming. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was a cool video. Very nice. All right, moving on. We have a, an article in Forbes from someone named um, Seth um, Por- Porges, Porges, Porges. I have no idea. <laughs> it is P-O-R-G-E-S, Seth P-O-R-G-E-S. Anyway, title of the article, How the Original Prince of Persia Changed Video Game Animation. Now, Prince of Persia never appeared on the color computer which is a shame for us, actually, because it's a pretty damn cool game. <laughs> it was first released on the Apple II, 
Uh, I first played it on the on a on a PC compatible in college, uh, probably ninety two or so. I remember being amazed at how fluid and awesome the graphics, uh, the animation were. Oh, and yeah. so this is yeah. this is the story of how those were created. And just to shorten it out, basically the game's creator Jordan Mechner, um, he basically did what you would call rotoscoping, where he um, he filmed his little brother with a VHS <laughs> a VHS tape and had his little brother kind of do some of these stunts. And then he went back and had some kind of mechanism for transferring uh, that uh, captured video into uh, digital data for for animation. <laughs> and uh, that's how he did the uh, the uh, animation on the first Diablo two and then other machines. Um, well, he did. I, I think he only did the Apple two, but sort of uh, carried over to some of the other machines. Anyway, it's a cool story. Um, so a there's a little technique if you really want to do something similar with the really cool animation on your cocoa, then you could do some rotoscoping or whatever. If this isn't technically rotoscoping, it's something close to it. Um, you could do that. Uh, also, in more recent years, uh, Jordan Mechner apparently dug out the original source code for um, Prince of Persia and has published it online. Uh, along, he also has published a. Um, uh, a journal that he kept when he was writing the game. And so you could, uh, using um, with a source code, possibly with the journal for reference, um, you could uh, take that code and port it over from the 6502 Origins uh, over to the 6809 and have a pretty cool game for the Coco. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> Are you baiting Glenn Hewlett? Uh, I would love to see Glenn or someone else take that on. <laughs> yeah, I would too. It would be a pretty cool one. So that would be really cool, awesome game. I've always thought the Coco Three could definitely handle that. Oh, there's no doubt about it. I mean, yeah, Apple, Apple Two could do it. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, you'd be slightly handicapped because there's bound to be some Apple Twoisms in the code or whatever. But I'm sure you'd overcome that. Anyway, well, there's your challenge, Gauntlet thrown down. <laughs> <laughs> you know who might be up for that uh, challenge is Mark McDougal. He, well, he'd yeah. probably do really well with it. Yes, um, he would. I don't know where he, when last we left our hero, Mark, he was uh, doing 6809 code based on the the Star Wars arcade game, doing some kind of development platform for, for writing code for the arcade hardware. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a neat project. It is. Yeah. But um, I don't know. I don't know about you guys, but I haven't been uh, – to uh, haven't been able to pull out my Star Wars arcade game for experimenting with that one. <laughs> yeah. Cool that you have one. Yeah, well, yeah. So anyway, moving on, I guess we'll go on to the the next couple of news items actually come from Mr. Boise. Got uh, the browser loading a web, web page server for my Coco 3, running the approved HTTP daemon and 6809 assembly and the DriveWire Mac server. And then the next line is, for those of you who run Macs, DriveWire Server for Mac OS is available for download. So, Boise, tell us about these two. Sure. So, DriveWire, as we all know, DriveWire 4 is the standard that uh, Aaron and I came up with. Aaron wrote a DriveWire Java server, but it's been problematic, at least on certain platforms, to get running. So, I, re I resurrected the 
original DriveWire Mac server written in Objective-C for Mac users and started working on it in earnest a few months ago and got it to the point now where it's running pretty well. It does the networking, uh, it's starting to do the virtual terminals and everything else. The HTTPD daemon was part of the work that Aaron had did whenever he did DriveWire 4 and added the networking extensions. However, he wrote <clears throat> Excuse me. He wrote an HTTP daemon in uh, Basic 09, which ran okay, but you know, in a constrained memory environment like OS 9, where you might want to do a lot with a little, a uh, lot with less, uh, I thought I could maybe improve on that by rewriting an HTTP daemon in uh, in 6009 assembly. So that's exactly what I did. And it runs pretty well. It serves up web pages. It serves up uh, images. Uh, you know, parses the HTTP headers, and works pretty well. And uh, it's a little slow on DriveWire. I uh, really haven't run it on anything faster. But uh, the hope is that once we start getting newer hardware, that uh, you know, SD cards, things like that, uh, and getting OS9 drivers for those, which I'm sure exist, we could run it on there pretty fast and load things up. So it works pretty well. Cool. Yeah, I've, I've definitely used it. It's, uh, it's fantastic. I've, I've missed it uh, because of the, the Java issues that the Mac had. So yeah. uh, it's nice to have a nice stable platform. And I got to play with the uh, HTTP. And uh, also the really nice feature you added is uh, AppleScript support for, uh, for DriveWire. Yeah. So you can just write a script to say, you know, load these three disks up. Yeah, that does sound very nice. That's one thing, you know, Java is supposed to be, you know, write once, run everywhere or whatever, however true that may or may not be. But uh, I've always thought that you do kind of lose something or, or potentially gain something by going to, um, you know, the, the the host platform and taking advantage of capabilities that that has. Um, the, the, the hosts aren't quite as differentiated these days as, as it seems like they used to be, but... You know, like back in the days when the Amiga had um, um, uh, Rex ports and stuff like that, where you could control stuff using the Rex language on board and do stuff like that. Or in this case, you know, you've got your Apple script uh, or, or whatever it's called. Um, pretty cool stuff. Um, I'm sure you could do some interesting stuff on a Linux machine using uh, some of the dbus messages in the background to control things. Anyway, pretty cool idea. Might inspire me. Uh, I've been uh, wanting to to learn um, Rust or maybe some other uh, modern language, and and uh, maybe so a worthy project for something like that. Uh, <laughs> we'll see. No pre-announcements. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just add about the DriveWire service that there are other options out there for multi-platform. I saw someone had written a Python server. I don't recall yeah. at the moment. Yeah. So. There are other op alternatives out there that are more multi-platform, although not, you know, taking advantage of the GUI features of one particular platform. Yeah. Well, there's also there's like a plain C one, I think, that is might as well be multi-platform. Yes. Yeah, in fact, that's the one that I just put up on GitHub along with the DriveWire Mac server. So I have GitHub repositories for the DriveWire Mac server and the Linux or Unix slash Linux. Uh, it's based, on I think, on TermCap. Uh, our curse is actually the curses library. Yeah, cool. All right, well, good. So, um, 
on the Java stuff there, did, was the Java always, did it always have some problems or is this a matter of bit rot uh, that um, Java just hasn't stayed enough the same or whatever? <laughs> uh, Mike, so well, I think that's the case, right? Mike, I know that I had some issues as I upgraded. To yeah, the it, it worked great when it first OS. came out. It worked great when it first yeah. came out, but as uh, it's just bit rot, like you said, over time, yeah. Java, you know, updates every other day it seems and yeah. it just got to the point where some things yeah. broke and it just behaved erratically or wouldn't run at all sometimes there could probably be a whole podcast on the politics of java and the development of the language and the ecosystem there or whatever in fact i'd be surprised if there's not but yeah, yeah. this isn't it so <laughs> <laughs> yeah so we'll move on from here the next link the link is from jim gary but he's referring to some work by a fellow named robert sieg uh, I guess that's how you pronounce it. So I know Robert actually seems to be, um, he's really more of a, a VZ200 person. Uh, the v, for those not familiar, the VZ200 was a an Australian machine, had a Z80 processor, but a 6847 video chip. And so there's some certain similarities uh, with the graphics or whatever. And so it draws... Uh, some people to between there's a certain amount of uh, transfer between the MC10 and the and the VZ200, and so you see that in those communities a little bit. And this Robert C is one of those people, um, but he comes over to the MC10 world. Now in the MC10, uh, one of his problems is that when they <laughs> when they wired it up, they basically didn't wire up the the highest address line. I guess it is the highest one or the next one down. One or the other, there's an address line from the 6847 that's not wired up. And so it can't do the most high-resolution graphics modes, at least not effectively. You can turn them on in the chip, but you get kind of a mess. <laughs> <laughs> and so if you look at the picture... Here, Jim is showing it. Um, so, so there's this project that, that he calls this full screen project. And basically, it's a way of turning on these video modes and still trying to make them useful, even though there's kind of a mess at the top and the bottom. And so uh, you can see where Jim has his, uh, he's got two versions of the screenshot, one with a, a virtual uh, cutout that you would be like an overlay that just blocks out the top and bottom of the screen. It's kind of funny, really. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, so I just uh, this is an excuse to talk about this full screen stuff. Um, so the, these guys are working on the MC10 world, trying to get the most out of their machine. And uh, like I said, the the 6847 doesn't really know how much memory is attached to it. And you just put it in its mode, and it works its address lines. And you know the fact that there's nothing out there on the other end doesn't matter to it. <laughs> so. <laughs> It just takes whatever shows up on the bus and shoots it out as video. You can do some neat hacks and get something out of it. And, you know, you may need this little cardboard cutout to make it look a little better, but it's something that can be done. <laughs> it's a little bit weird. Anyway, since uh, Jim posted that, I thought I'd uh, uh, include it here since it's kind of an interesting uh, hack there. There is a lot of work there that the, the that Robert Sieg and some others have put into that full screen project over the years. So you may want to check out the MC10 Yahoo group and uh, see some of that. So back to something a little more normal for us is the next one is a um, a uh, Jim Gary video for uh, a game that he's got running, uh, I think, on the MC10 here. They imported the MC10 and the SG6 graphics uh, from 
The Amazing Maze 4, published in March 1983 of Softline. So he's called it a maze. <laughs> so it's a maze generation game, I guess. Or, or no, it looks like maze navigation here. So it's, it's like a 3D um, style of environment. Yeah. Kind of neat. Yeah. So kind of like Dungeons of Dagrath or something. <laughs> but uh, um, so very cool. So once again, uh, Jim Gary laying down the marker for how lazy, lazy the rest of us are. Here's his first one. <laughs> so moving on, uh, here's another video or link to a video. So Steve Shrubridge posted a link. Um, some they did over with the uh, Coco Talk folks. Um, they did a live stream uh, trying to produce a winner for the Forest of Doom Chalice of Bravery, which I guess was the, the second prize for um, the, Chalice, uh, the Forest of Doom. <laughs> so they did a, uh, a live stream and had a lot of fussing and cussing for about four hours as people played the game simultaneously. Ultimately, Jason Rygard came up with it. Um, so anyway, um, kind of a fun video if you're into watching people play games. Um, uh, and if you hot to know the latest news on Forest of Doom or whatever, you may want to check it out. Uh, what do you think, Neil? You've been uh, keeping up with Forest of Doom? I've been checking the videos out. Uh, i got to get back playing it again. It's a fun game. Yeah? Yeah. They're pretty cool. All right, moving on to the next link. Link from someone named Richard Harding. It says, um, a little present for the community, part one, CPU, restored Dragon 64 circuit diagram taken from an A1 full-size white print. So I guess it's a schematic for the Dragon set up for uh, some sort of European paper size or <laughs> something. <laughs> um, anyway, that's fair since the Dragon's uh, got some European roots there. Yeah. Um, anyway, if you're a Dragon owner looking for a... Uh, high-res scan of uh, the circuit diagram, then um, this may be for you, so check it out. All right, the next one, uh, why is this here? Z80 Emu Evolution. It's got nothing to do with the Coco, right? Well, yeah, nothing to do with the Coco per se, but if you're interested in reading, I think a lot of people kind of get snippy and uppity and mad about how this emulator or that one has some weird problem or it it was working, but now it doesn't work because it changed something or blah, 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 whatever. I think a lot of people don't have a full appreciation for the intricacies and the, the complexity of what it's like to build an emulator for retro hardware or any, any hardware, really. And so, you know, why don't you take a read here, see if uh, <laughs> see if it, if it helps you understand why sometimes... Things don't work quite like they're supposed to, especially when you're trying to do something that no one else has tried to do. Um, any of you guys have a chance to read this one? I read it a little bit, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, you know, things like do you, do you count by instruction or do you count by CPU cycle? Uh, has a lot of follow-on um, design um, features that flow from some of these decisions and things you have to account for. Anyway, I thought it was interesting. Hopefully someone else does too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the next one, again, not really Cocoa per se. Solid state tape device for the micro chem. Uh, so the chem one was a single board computer made basically as a to demo of the 6502 processor before it became, you know, popular. 
uh, in all the home computer machines or whatever. Later, it had a lot of application as basically a, uh, an, embed, an embedded system in a way similar to how people nowadays might use a Raspberry Pi or an Arduino. Nowadays, there's a, a modern uh, replica of it called the MicroChem. One of the articles they're building a storage device for this um, this system. Anyway, my point being, it's kind of a cool technical write-up. Somebody solving a problem on a, on a real machine that's kind of going to have some same kind of uh, same era of electronics that the Coco is using. <laughs> and so, thought there might be some interesting information here for folks. Again, I thought it was interesting. Hope someone else did too. <laughs> yeah, I definitely did. I think. Uh... You know, emulating the tape uh, digitally is uh, it's a good read just because of the, you know, the techniques and stuff involved in uh, grabbing that uh, data from the, uh, yeah. the cam. So good read. Very cool. Great moments in history. Mr. Watson, come here. I want to see you. Mr. Bell, it worked. I heard every word. Duh, you were supposed to. I called you in here because I just received the newest Radio Shack flyer in today's mail. Look for your Radio Shack flyer in this week's mail. Save 25 to 50% on select items throughout the store. Mr. Bell, where are you going? Why, to Radio Shack, of course, for big savings. What about the telephone? If anyone calls, take a message. Radio Shack, America's technology store. Just keeps on ticking, and April is much closer than it seems. Uh-huh. My brain just keeps on drifting back to my heart, even in my dreams. Uh-huh. There's a man in the back selling new ROM packs, and his solder's as hot as the sun. Hardware to sell and stories to tell, and everyone's having great fun. Oh, yeah, so many options. At the great big auctions, a memory worth sharing when you touch the heron. Yeah, 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 yeah. Someone set up the tables, connected all the cables, and it turned into a Coco Fest. Made our reservations, watched the presentations, and it turned into a Coco Fest. Coco Fest. For a sweet time. Come to Coco Fest April 21st and 22nd at the Hebron Point Convention Center in Lombard, Illinois. Make your reservation today. Call 630-629-1500 and ask for the special Coco Fest room rate. Coco Fest. Make it your own. All right. Neural network on a Commodore 64. Uh, this article, the article's... 30 years ago, <laughs> September 4th, 1987. I think I've got to this link, you know, through another link somewhere else or whatever. So anyway, I just discovered this in the last couple of weeks or last month or whatever. But um, it seems like, you know, artificial inter- intelligence and neural networks and that sort of thing is a, a popular uh, subject these days, a, a topic du jour state-of-the-art of of computer science or whatever um so i thought it was interesting to uh, to point to see this article and point out that at least part of this uh, technology is quite old (laughs) and uh here's being implemented uh on uh, a commodore 64 if the commodore 64 can do it the the coco can do it um so um 
if you have an interest in this kind of thing and you want to get on a kind of a a uh, more gritty level, uh, actually learn the bits and bytes of it. Um, maybe this is something that uh, would have some experimentation that might be fun for you. Um, so, I don't know. Check it out. What do you think, Boise? Yeah, so I saw this, John. Um, obviously, I have an interest in this work. I've worked in uh, this type of field. And uh, I was struck by the fact that it was from 1987, uh, yeah. obviously. You know, things that the techniques for neural networks were known then, but the computing power was not readily available as it is today. Yeah. I think it would be fun to uh, get someone to uh, take that basic program, basically make it run on a cocoa. It looks like what they're doing is they're teaching uh, numeric, uh, teaching a neural network to recognize uh, dot matrix numbers, which is a pretty easy uh, task. and one of the more simpler things that you do whenever you uh, take a neural network course is you look at uh, the MNIST uh, data set, which is handwriting recognition, and teaching uh, a neural network how to recognize handwriting of different characters. So this is really, uh, really cool stuff. Uh, I wish I had the time to do it myself to, to play with this program, but I unfortunately have too much going on. <laughs> You'd have to write your Cocoa programs and then uh, get to uh, a thousand emulators all hooked up <laughs> and to be able to run anything um, useful. And then, and then I could warm my house. Exactly. <laughs> well, you know, that code that code is not very huge, so no, it's not. It's definitely it's, got I'm some possibilities. I'm looking at it right now, and you know, usually Commodore 64 Basic was poke after poke after poke. I see a yeah. little bit of that in here, but not, but most of this looks like uh, standard basics. So cool. So there you go. It might uh, not be too hard to translate that then. Yeah. Just need somebody who's uh, interested and talented. And uh, where's Ben Anding when we need? It? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's um, moving on. The next link is. Um, Something I thought was interesting that's called the Ocelot Arcade System. I was hoping when I dug into this that somewhere there'd be a, you know, a, if you would like to order one, that kind of link. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. Think it actually included that. And this is not a particularly of retro processor here. It's a microchip DSP33. It's kind of a more modern microcontroller. It's not a lot, not as much power as, as you know, like a Raspberry Pi or something, but. It's not a slouch either. Kind of neat. Somebody's built a system that does vector graphics or uses vector graphics. So, and again, for those unfamiliar, you know, the typical television is uses what's called a raster, which is it's almost like a lawnmower running a push mower over your yard. <laughs> you kind of go one line at a time and back and forth across the screen. Uh, whereas uh, vector graphics are, is more like an etch-a-sketch, where you kind of Put a, put a beam at, at uh, a point on the screen and you turn it on and move it around and it uh, draws on the screen that way. And then so the old, the, the kind of the oldest classic arcade games, you know, like uh, Asteroids and Tempest and uh, Star Wars, like I mentioned, use the vector style of graphics technology. And some people think it's pretty cool, including me. Yeah, I'm, uh, yeah. I'm one of them too. Me too. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> And um, one is a little hard to get a true uh, vectrix, uh, vector, vectrix, that's different, but vector style displayed these days, except 
uh, many oscilloscopes have uh, what's called an XY mode, and you can do um, vector-style graphics on the oscilloscope, and that's exactly what they're doing here. And so, if nothing else, it's a, kind of a cool demonstration of what projects you might do. Uh, you could probably implement something not too different from this with a Cocoa as, uh, as the processing core, and I would personally love to see that. <laughs> so yeah. So anyway, uh, I wish I could tell you where to buy it, but um, you know, if you can figure out where to buy it, maybe you can give me one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, put us on the list. Yeah. All right. Well, so moving on. Here's something I've kind of been hearing about it for a while, and never quite come across an actual link. Um, but this. Um, uh, is this one project or three projects in one? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they're supposed to target different systems or why they have different names here, but something called Ardua Tape or CAS Duino or TZX Duino. Basically, they're Arduino-based um, little machines that are designed to replace a cassette player. And uh, I'm pretty sure at least one of the possible targets uh, is a Coco or the Dragon. Looks like you can target um, the Amstrad CPC. There's some others in there, I think, as well. Uh, a lot of people complain about tapes. They're not the best, <laughs> certainly not the most convenient uh, storage format these days. I happen to think they're kind of fun. Um, but uh, sometimes it's useful, if nothing else, to use the tape interface, but maybe have a different device feeding it. And that's what this is for. So you may want to check it out, see what's available. There's a little store here. I remember seeing a store. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's for someone uh, named Duncan Edwards. I think he's over in the UK. I think he's more of a dragon guy, but I don't know. You may want to check it out. Uh, well, it's, uh, it's a perfect time for this device to come out with all the new cell phones dropping the uh, headphone port. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, true. very true. <laughs> That's true. Uh, so who else is, uh, are they dropping from Sony or anybody like, or um, Samsung or anybody like that, or is it, is it still just Apple? Or uh, I think uh, the new the new Pixel, I think uh, they yeah, dropped. Pixel before. two dropped them, so I think oh, it was really? going to follow suit. I think that's the trend. Huh. All right. Well, I was going to get a Pixel two, maybe not now. <laughs> <laughs> oh well. Anyway, cool. Um, so the next one on the list here, the link on the Facebook group from John Strong. It's got a prototype design for the Coco 3 FPGA. So as uh, you may know, John Strong has kind of become the 3D case printer for the group for everyone's project in the Coco world. They seem to go to John Strong and get him to um, design and print 3, uh, 3D printed plastic cases for them. Um, in this case, we've got the uh, DE1 um, FPGA development board combined with the um, an analog board for Coco 3 FPGA to kind of give it Cocoa style uh, IO ports. And you marry them together, and then uh, this is a plastic case to wrap it all up. <laughs> kind of makes it look a little bit more like a, an integrated computer or something. Yeah. So, anyway, yeah, what do you think? It gives it that uh, computer look. It actually has a, I think it looks pretty good. Yeah, it needs a case. It's kind of an ugly beast. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. So pretty cool. So moving on, we got uh, let's see, we got two more from Jim Geary. Let's see, uh, we got something called the War Animation. 
Uh, yeah, animation of a tank shooting at a helicopter. <laughs> kind of cool. Yeah. Um, oh, it's not an actual game, I guess. It's just an animation. That's kind of yeah. cool. Yeah, it's a fun video to watch, though. A little ASCII art <laughs> animation. Yeah, pretty cool. And then he's also got a video of a game called Meteor Storm, which is uh, derived from an, a ZX81 game. It's for the MC-10. Also shooting and stuff, uh, space shooter kind of thing. <laughs> Pretty cool. So again, uh, Jim Gary, uh, cranking them out for uh, for your enjoyment. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, space adventure game for the Tandy Color Computer Three by Brian Joyce. So he's got a, I think this is a development blog for a game in progress called uh, Emissary. AKA yet another space game. <laughs> so he says it's a space adventure game for the Dandy Color Computer 3 currently in development. A multi-level basic game involving a lone space travel traveler touring through the universe, encountering strange phenomenon and other civilizations. So that's, um, so he's got this blog, uh, set up at ft501.com. Um, uh, Let's see, he seems to be working through some graphics on graph paper. Uh, if you'd like to read development blogs, it looks like this will be right up your alley. Yeah, good to see someone writing code for the Coco. Definitely. Cool. And uh, that's a cool web domain he's got, fd501.com. <laughs> no, very cool. Oh, I even made the inspiration list here. Now at 47 years old, having support from the color computer community and getting huge inspiration from people like John Strong, John Linville, Nick Marentis, Rick Adams, D. Bruce Moore, Paul Thayer, Steve Bamford, and Steve Strobridge, I thought it was time to do it. Woohoo! I always love to be uh, inspiring to people. <laughs> yeah, you, you got to mention. Yeah, very exciting. <laughs> All right, next one. Oh, this, this is a little melancholy, I think. Um, and so the massive unloading of my video game and computer collection begins, and it's from Bill LeJudas. Yeah. Um, so, boys, are you, in, are you in contact with Bill? Do you know much about this, uh, what he's doing here? I, I, we talked a little bit, but I haven't talked to him lately, and uh looks like he got rid of, I'd say, a good bit. I don't know if it's most of his collection, but he had a pretty sizable collection from what I recall. So, And based on the pictures on Facebook, it looked like, there were several moving vans that came to, of, I guess, take it away for auction. A lot yeah. of stuff. As mm-hmm. He does say, says the vast majority is going to auction. A lot of stuff there. Yeah, that's a that's a collection. So full photo gallery link, 182 images. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Were, were there any Were there any cocos in there? I didn't really peruse them. Um, I haven't really dug into it. Um it's hard to imagine there's not, considering what other things are in there, um, unless he purposely kept them out. He's I definitely he, got a lot of stuff in there. I think he was going to keep a Coco 3, he said. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, he had a lot of stuff for sure. So, I don't know. This is, uh, you may want to check into that, keep up with the auction, uh, particularly if you're in uh, the New Jersey area. Um, he, maybe he, some. He, he may be crashing the vintage computing market. <laughs> he, may be. he may be big enough to do it. Yeah. <laughs> the size of that all train right. is huge. So. I'm sure it's all uh, primo stuff, too. I'm sure it's all oh, pretty yeah. good stuff. Yeah. 
All right. Well, Bill, uh, hopefully you're just secretly uh, resetting and just going <laughs> to <laughs> be competing for other stuff now. That'd be cool. Um, all right, moving on. Uh, Steve Strobridge, Cosmic Aliens. So uh, I know in his, uh, from other sources that he, this was a game he developed on a PC in BASIC, and QBASIC, I guess it was. And uh, he was poking around and recently and found uh, found it somewhere on the internet and kind of revitalized his interest. And now he's kind of re-implementing it on the Coco. Um, so uh, very cool. Another kind of development blog here. If you're interested in uh, development blogs, uh, it's uh, it's like I said, it's another good one to read. Looks like um, uh, kind of a Space Invaders, Galaxian kind of a game. Pretty cool. Yeah. All right. Next links from uh, Giovanni Nunez. I guess that's how it's pronounced. It says, I've written a tool to help programming in BASIC. You write your program in any text editor without line numbering and using definitions and comments like a modern programming language, and my tool will convert it into a classic, uh, classical line-numbered BASIC program. Yeah, so uh, you know, I think there's some other tools that are out there. I think um, Stephen H. Fisher, I guess, has had one forever called Urbane. Um, I think there's one in the Apple II world that's kind of a similar uh, thing. But, you know, so for those that don't quite get it, imagine if you could take a, a program written, say, like for Basic 09, which is kind of freeform, almost looks more like Pascal or something, and then squ- squish it through a tool and then be able to run it on, on the bare Cocoa Basic, which expects line numbers and stuff. It is a lot nicer way to program <laughs> in ways that I could not even fathom to understand back in those days <laughs> <laughs> um, until you've kind of programmed without line numbers uh, that line numbers don't seem so so uh, difficult. But once you get rid of them, <laughs> you don't want them back. See, it's, <laughs> it's funny coming from a non-programmer. I, I would think you would want the line numbers. It keeps it organized. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can sort of see it, and, and you know, basically line numbers are just labels for every line. So, in a sense, it's not that different, but it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, moving on, I threw in a, a, a ringer here, another, <laughs> not exactly a Coco uh, link here, but it's a Gama Sutra link, making a Game Boy game in 2017, a Sheep It Up Postmortem. Uh, part one of two. I guess maybe there's a part two out there by now. So basically, somebody's made a game for the Game Boy, and uh, let's kind of talk about the development process or whatever. I include stuff like this because you know it's not necessarily all that different, just because it's a different system. You're going to use kind of similar tools or similar techniques for programming on a Cocoa or whatever. Is not exactly the same, but some of it there's going to be some overlap. So I thought this might be interesting for some budding programmers out there. And just because you want to program for the Coco, you might want to program for the Game Boy too. <laughs> so that's yeah, a um, it's a neat little game. It's something certainly you could uh, port to the Coco. Well, and there you go too. You could port the, the game itself, or something you could be inspired by it. You know, pretty cool. It almost looks like a reverse Farfall, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it kind of is. You got to climb up. Oh, shit. Now I've got myself a new project. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, food for thought. 
All right, another one. The next one link is another from Jim Geary. Uh, Ranger update now with restart. So I think this is um, one that he's had in progress for a while, and uh, this is an update on uh, his game. Um, uh, so it's uh, a Star Trek uh, type of game, I guess. Uh, Star Ranger. <laughs> Destroy all Klingons. You have four bases. All right, well, very cool. You know, Jim kind of puts out these games, and he does revisit them and updates them, keeps them up to date. Very cool. Again, something to do on your MC-10. Or your Alice. Well, there you go. Maybe that's uh, <laughs> to dig out the Alice. Uh, I have to play in French. Give, so. give some of these try. <laughs> <laughs> Create the French versions, yes. All right, so we have a couple of blog posts here from Glenn Hewlett, um, both related. So he, Glenn is, uh, you know, so this is the, the person that did the um, – uh, well, he did originally a Space Invaders kind of transcode from the Z80 code, and then he did Pac-Man. Now he's looking at doing Defender, which is in some ways a similar project and in some ways different, because Defender uses a 6809 processor. So you're not having to translate the assembly code. Well, I mean, not all of it. <laughs> but you have to account for the fact that the video, uh, the video mapping is done differently, the... So some of the hardware differences, you're going to put things in different places, you have to account for the controls differently, that sort of stuff. So it's somewhere between a port and a bootleg (laughs) (laughs) of Defender. Um, But So he's got a couple of blog posts here on it. One talks more about the Defender. The the other one is talks about some code from Defender, but it it kind of goes into a coding trick that they use for... um, for loading, um, this is someone from loading from the uh, the controls. Anyway, some of it's about Defender per se. Some of it's a little bit more about analyzing the code and learning tricks. Kind of cool to read if you're interested. I'd recommend taking a look. Did you check it out there, Boise? Yeah, I've been following Glenn's work since he did the Pac-Man port, and I love it. I think it is just really cool. Um, it's uh, taking those old video games that we played, you know, as in our teen years and making them available on the Cocoa. And, and I, I still say it's amazing that this could have been done back when the Cocoa 3 was being sold in 86 and 87 had we had that right set of bits in the right order on a floppy disk, <laughs> right? That's right. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Uh, very you cool. know, obviously the work to make those bits in that arrangement is very, very hard, but now with the with the cross development tools, it's very possible and easy to do. I say easier, not not that it's easy, but uh, yeah, it's just terrific work. Very good work. Yep. Very cool. That could have been running in a Radio Shack on display. Yeah, <laughs> that's right, Neil. Maybe maybe they would have sold more cocos. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, they might have. yeah, probably we would have. Well, that's the cool thing. I mean, Glenn, he does is doing some challenging prog- projects. They're technically challenging. Um, and you know he's got a pretty good hand with the writing, so it, it's not it's not too dry, it's not too um, right. boring or whatever. It's not too, uh, you know, some. It's a, he just ha- he has a good style. Let's just put it that way. It's it's, it's easy to read and, and informative and uh, and entertaining. So very good. All right, moving on to the next link. Uh, oh, by the way, Glenn has, a, I think, a part three out there now. He might have a part four by the time you hear this. So <laughs> be sure to check out all his blog. The dragon is back. 
to assemble all of the pieces. You're thinking about the next step for your system, and you're happy that the rain gives you a chance to spend time with your computer. Life is unpredictable. That's why Coco Mutual wants you to think about term system insurance. Taking care of future expenses if anything should happen to your vintage computer system. It's easy. We get to know your lifestyle and your needs. Then we give you our best quote. And our competitors. You could receive up to $2,000 of coverage for just $15 a month. We offer plans with no medical exam required. Call Coco Mutual at 888-6809 or visit cocomutual.com for your free quote. It's not just your computer. It's your life. Moving on, we've got a, a link from William, William Schaub. Schaub? William Schaub. Um, picture of him uh, dressed, uh, uh, riding a horse, kind of looks like he's dressed as a Oh, Civil War soldier of some sort. <laughs> um, anyway, it says, uh, I've committed my Hello World, Hello World code that reads its own source code from disk using ROM calls. I'm relying on a T1 VDG, VDG for lowercase display and had to write some conversion routines to translate between ASCII and VDG codes. He's got his project out here to help. Um, kinda, he's learning some assembly code and wants to make stuff available for other people to be able to learn too. If you remember, uh, he, he, that was uh, something we covered in an earlier episode. And so I guess this is one, maybe his latest version of that. And so he's got code that um, you know, opens a file and displays it and does some of the conversions that you need to uh, convert ASCII values over to uh, screen code values for the VDG. So, uh, you know, it's, um, it's a real piece of code is doing real work and dealing with real problems. Now, do you often need to have a program read its own source code? Well, no, not specifically, but many programs will need to read files off a disk and that sort of thing. So pretty cool. What do you guys think? Yeah, it's definitely good. I, I think it's good to see a lot of these, uh, you know, even like what Glenn was doing. It's good to see like example code to understand the, the process. So uh, it's good stuff. Yeah, it's good for people to share and show what they've learned and that sort of thing. So very cool. All right. Uh, the next link, um, well, this, so this announcing uh, the Asteroids game for the MC-10 comes from Darren Atkinson. Let's see, he says, um, 
there's a it's an email address uh, to Jim Gary. It says, hey, Jim Gary, a while back you suggested an Asteroids clone for the MC-10. I went ahead and adapted a version that was originally written for the Coco, in parentheses, Star Blaster by Jim Kearney. It requires a 16K RAM expansion to run on real hardware. Uses lower resolution RG2 graphics mode, and that's partly because the what we were talking about earlier, where there's not quite enough memory on the MC10 to actually use the higher resolution modes. <laughs> mm-hmm. But anyway, so you released the code, so it's a it's a competent Asteroids game uh, running on the MC10. Um, pretty cool. It's very um, cool. So and it's a it's a Darren's done a couple of these where he's basically taking a, a binary is it's almost like the kind of the projects that uh, Glenn Hewlett is doing uh, in that he takes a binary written for one machine and, and translates it for another but in this case he takes a binary for the Coco and translates it to run on the MC10 which is a different processor so um, there is some some actual work there the uh, the processor on the MC10 is not totally dissimilar from the 6809, but it's not exactly the same either. <laughs> so, yeah, some interesting work there. And I think this is at least his third or fourth program he's done like that. So, pretty cool. Very cool. It almost makes you want to get an MC10. <laughs> yeah. I've got a couple, even some friends. <laughs> I was just thinking, I got I to gotta hook up my MC10. I mean, this yeah. is, yeah. you know, I keep saying this every podcast. <laughs> The MC-10 takes a bad rap on uh, some some uh, corners of the uh, Coco uh, broadcasting world, but uh, I happen to think they're kind of fun. They there are definitely some dumb decisions made in the design, <laughs> or at least at least I can't explain them. If they're not dumb, I can't explain them. But they're still a competent machine in many ways, and you can do some cool stuff with it. All right, so moving on, we have a link to a, a video. The video I think actually is. Um, taken by uh, Steve Strobridge. I think they filmed it actually at Tandy Assembly, but the person in the video is uh, Richard Lorbieski of Boysen Tech, Boysen Technology, and the video shows him desoldering and removing a 6809 chip from a Coco 3 as part of the process of upgrading it to a Hitachi 60. So he's removing the 6809 and replacing it with a 6309. And so it's an interesting video. Um, so Richard's using a, a, a desoldering tool with a built-in vacuum pump, which is by far the best way to do this if you have the, such a tool. <laughs> um, and so he's able to uh, take away the, the solder and get the chips out with uh, essentially no damage to the board. So uh, on the other hand, recently I saw pictures of someone else's attempt to do something similar on a Coco 3, and they, they basically ruined the uh, <laughs> Coco 3 um, by tearing up the traces off the board. And, and uh, oh, it was heartbreaking, really. But um, uh, I guess the, the point here is it's become very popular for, in some, uh, for some people to um, do the 6309 upgrade not, a, not only just on the Coco 3, which I think is pretty reasonable, but they're also doing them on the Coco, Coco 1s and 2s, which I think is kind of silly because there's not really any software that takes advantage of it. But anyway, if you're going to do it, make sure you have the skills and the tools and uh, 
if you don't seek out somebody like Richard that does, because it, it uh, you know, once you tear up those cocoa motherboards, they're not making any new uh-huh. ones. <laughs> you yeah. know, yeah, right, gotta right. gotta keep them and, in good shape. And um, there's while there's plenty of them out there for now, it's not unlimited. And uh, I'd really, I don't want to go. Uh, I don't want to get to the point where we have to rely on, you know, whatever FPGA or whatever is available today. I'd, I'd like to use the old machines as long as possible. Absolutely. <laughs> so, anyway. Yeah, well, I'm I'm stuck in my ways some way sometimes, um, but anyway, do uh you know like I said if if you're gonna do this upgrade, do try to make sure you can uh, pull it off competently or or find someone who can. Well, so the next uh, link here on the agenda is a uh, uh, a topic I love um, from uh, <laughs> a presenter that I'm pretty fond of too. So, Mike, why don't you tell us about it? Uh, yeah, I did a. Uh a video demonstration of the Game Master cart, as well as a technical walkthrough of the uh, Color Computer sound multiplexer. If you're interested in uh, the Game Master cart, I'll be doing a series of these, so I'm already working on my follow-up, which will actually be walking through uh, making sounds. I've made a point of doing this through BASIC with the uh, thought that you know all the principles are the same when you move to machine language, and ultimately I'll move to machine language. So. Hope to keep that series going. It's a cool, cool card. Cool, it's fun playing with that sound chip, and uh, I plan to also cover the uh, the ROM banking features of it. Cool. Yeah, cool. Mike, I, I I watched that video, and it was just you just did a great job, man. Very easy, uh, easily explained uh, using animations to highlight things about the source code, the registers, how to change things so that the sound is enabled. It was just very well done. No, thanks. I'm I'm just trying to demystify it, make it understandable to people, and uh, it's gotten good responses so far. So, yeah, it's very I do, good. I do have one suggestion. When you get into the ask to the video where you're going to be talking about how to make sound, could you do a demo song that starts like this? I'll see what I can do. <laughs> oh Lord, yeah, very good. It's like a. Uh, Almost like watching a Mr. Wizard episode. I, I really enjoyed that. <laughs> that, was, that was a great video. So, very good. All right, so moving on, we have another uh, Jim Geary uh, uh, presentation here, Underground Adventure, and in parentheses, Duckworth. <laughs> not sure what that is. Um, it says, A Text Adventure by Peter Gerard, found in the book series Exploring Adventures. Ported to TRS-80 MC-10 from Dragon32. says, uh, evocative of Colossal Cave Adventure. Um, so anyway, I don't know why it's, why the Duckworth is in there. but <laughs> um, Anyway, it's an adventure game uh, for uh, your MC-10. Uh, what else is there to say? Uh, it could be pretty fun. Uh, if you enjoy that kind of game, uh, you should check it out. Yeah, then uh, score another one for Jim Gary. Very cool. <laughs> All right. So the next one is a t- is a, another video. This one's from the Eight Bit Guy. Um, this is a, a personality on YouTube that does a, a lot of um, uh, kind of retro computing style of videos. And this time he's doing something on the Color Maximite Basic Computer and Microcontroller. Uh, is this again not really Coco, 
but there is a connection. Um, a more modern machine based on, a, I guess, a PIC32 processor. There's a, a basic language implementation running on it. With the, the language itself is pretty similar to the old Microsoft-style basics of, uh, you know, similar like Color Basic or AppleSoft or something like that. You know, so it's a kind of a familiar programming environment for a lot of us. Um, the processor's fast enough that uh, what was sometimes a bit slow back in the day on this processor runs pretty quick. If you're the kind of person that might listen to a podcast like this, it's uh, foreseeable that you might be interested in a pro in a uh, computing platform like like what's being described, the, the Maximite. Um, the tie-in here is um, early in the days of the, of the Maximite, uh, which came out of Australia. Apparently, Nick Marentis got pretty heavily involved in it, and he did a port of Donut Dilemma to the Maximite. Since I actually have one of these Maximite uh, uh, boards that I got through a Kickstarter, uh, it's actually, I think, the exact same board that uh, is in the uh, the video here, but with a different case wrapped around it. Um, uh, I've played the uh, Maximite version of Donut Dilemma. Uh, it enthralled uh, me and my kids for a couple of weeks <laughs> until my <laughs> until my daughter uh, set a high score so high it basically ashamed the rest of us from even bothering to play. <laughs> Destroyed, <laughs> devastated. Yeah. <laughs> the Maximite forums kind of have a. Um, they they kind of worked out a sort of a semi standard for for how you would hook up a joystick to the Maximite, um, which was kind of an exercise left to to the uh, to the owner to build, and so I, I did build the joystick adapter um, for that, and uh, probably ultimately led uh, to the, the joystick adapter for the Coco, <laughs> um, but uh, uh, not only did I build it, I also extended it so that you could use. Um, the Genesis uh, joypad with it. In Nick's original port of uh, Donut Dilemma, you you would just use a standard uh, Atari-style joystick with one button. And there's actually two actions in Donut Dilemma. There's a, a jump and then there's a throw. And so you'd use the button to jump and then you'd actually have to like push up on the joystick and the button to throw, which I thought was kind of awkward. So uh, I uh, hacked into the source and changed it so that you could uh, use one of the buttons to th throw and another button to jump. And then I, I uh, uh, since I had the other buttons, and then I made one button a pause and then made the start button work to start the game. And uh, I thought it was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. actually, I actually sent the changes to, to uh, Nick. Um, oh, yeah? I don't think he ever in, uh, released them. Um, but I did send them. Uh, well, if, you do, if you do uh, get a Maximite and you want to play Donut Dilemma and you want to build an adapter and use a Genesis controller with the buttons like I described, uh, contact me and I'll see if I can dig out my changes for you. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, And that's a good cool. version uh, of that game as well. It is. It's pretty yeah. fun. Yeah, I think uh, didn't... Uh... Yeah, Jim O'Keefe had yeah. it running at Coco Yeah, Jim O'Keefe, yeah, he has one of those, and he had it running at Coco Fest, and uh, that was yeah. fun to watch. Yeah, it was good. We just had the keyboard support, mind you, but uh, we didn't yeah. have that adapter. But Yeah, I should uh, at least bring my joystick adapter and uh, <laughs> make sure yeah. Jim has my version. That, uh, yeah, we could try it out. Yeah. All right, well, it, I, 
So, uh, just a side note, I've always thought that something like that Maximite, if we could all get together on it, you know, the whole community or whatever, that something like that would be a better Coco 4 than, than uh, you know, whatever we strapped together with a 6809 on it and, you know, six levels of, of rickety infrastructure to give us enough memory to play with. <laughs> I, I, I'm so with you there. Yeah, I just think it'd be better. Yeah, I think that would be a lot better um, and would satisfy a lot of the, oh, I want to program the old school way, but I want to do new stuff with it. It's just, you know, how do you herd the cats to all pick the same board? You know, This is sounding dangerously close to a Coco 4 discussion. Yeah, no, it's as far as close as I wanted to get. So, yeah. <laughs> so we're going to move on. All right, one more Jim Geary uh, post. Uh, this one's kind of neat. So Jim Gary Port, a forest of doom, <laughs> um, which he's taken from uh, the D. Bruce Moore game, and uh, I think he's working with Bruce on it actually, porting it over to the MC10. So MC10 users um, should end up with uh, the ability to play Forest of Doom. So I think that's pretty cool. Uh, so there's yet another reason for you to get your MC10, Neil. Yeah, I got to get this hooked up. <laughs> <laughs> Keep your MC10 on your desk and play That's that. Right. <laughs> so it's small, so it's really easy to set a book or something on it and nobody will notice. Small footprint. <laughs> All right. And the next one, this is, uh, again, Mr. Boise working with Pierre on CMOC to solidify OS9 support and bring the standard seed library over. You want to tell us about that, Boise? Yeah, so that's obviously C. Marcus Pierre uh, Sarazan's uh, project for compiling C programs to run on the Cocoa and the Disk Basic. So I reached out to Pierre probably, I don't know, two, three weeks ago and see where he was on OS9 support, which he had actually already gotten something working, but there was a significant lack of uh, support for uh, certain things in the standard C library. So I worked with him a little bit. We got some memory issues taken care of in the operating system, figured out some things. And uh, I've been taking the Crider C libraries, which we don't have source for, at least commented source, but we have disassembly for, and repatch, repackaging it up so that it could be compiled uh, with CMOC and assembled with LW tools to create a library of the standard uh, functions that are needed to do basic support for apps. So the reason this is pretty exciting is because we have a lot of C source code out there on various websites for OS9 programs for the Cocoa that has just been languishing out there. And before now, compiling it meant you had to compile it with the microware C compiler that ran on the Cocoa itself, which was pretty slow and was also limiting in that it didn't understand ANSI C uh, uh, code and um, this kind of made it difficult to bring some of this new source code that's out there and port it back to OS 9. So this is pretty exciting because the CMOC compiler does process ANSI C source code and uh, with the library changes that we're making, I think we're going to have a very powerful uh, platform to compile C programs, not just for Disk Basic, but for OS 9. Yeah, that's awesome. Cool. Awesome work. Very exciting. Um, 
Yeah, so expect a, a, a bunch of code to follow then. <laughs> I think I think that uh, by the Cocoa Fest, we're going to have all the kinks worked out, and hopefully, one thing that I need, and of course, I'm going to make a call out right now, is I could use some help because there's a lot of work in commenting uh, header files and you know making sure everything looks you know fit and finish. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in the library, so. I know a lot of people in the Cocoa community tend to kind of go off and do hardware projects, and, and there's plenty of people doing that, but it doesn't seem like there's a lot of people doing this kind of work. Cool, cool. Yeah, because uh, apparently there's only so many kinds of hardware projects that people do anymore. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so rather than stomping <laughs> on each other, maybe we should uh, find some hard, some software to do as well. Yeah, I mean, there's some duplicity in the hardware side of things, but no one is really doing anything with the C compiler for OS 9, so by all means, come and help. Cool. All right. So very exciting. Uh, moving on to our last news item. Neil, are you awake? I am. I'm here. <laughs> Okay, last news item, introducing and available now, Coco Sega Genesis Joypad slash joystick adapter CR, cost-reduced version. Tell us about that, Neil. Yeah, I wanted to do another run of these uh, Joypad adapters. Um, you know, for people that didn't get them the first time around, thought maybe $40 was too much, so I figured I'd make a cheaper version. Kind of what got me onto this was back at uh, Tandy Assembly. Uh, Jim Brain came up to me and... Uh, put two pre-made DIN cables on the desk in front of me, and that, that kind of got me thinking. I'm like, well, this will save a lot of time. So um, basically, fast forward, I, I bought a whole pile of DIN connectors uh, or DIN cables uh, from Jim, and I'm doing another run of these. Uh, I'm going to sell them for $25. Uh, basically, the difference is, is that you get no case, uh, and there's no serial cable on these for the, uh, the extra uh, third and fourth button on the Genesis Joypad. But you can add it later, like uh, all the hardware is still on the board, so it's definitely, um, you know, fully upgradable. And uh, and I'll still make the uh, full version if anybody wants the full one. I mean, I'll, I'll still do that. I do have cases, and uh, we can put the serial cable on it as well, so that's that's not a problem. Cool. Well, very exciting. If only uh, uh, some enterprising person would... Uh actually take advantage of the extra buttons, uh, <laughs> then maybe you'd uh, need that extra cable. I think that will come. Um, we'll just have to see how long it takes. Maybe uh, maybe we can write some games in C that uh, use the extra buttons. That'd be great. Run under OS 9 and um, uh, use the sound cartridge uh, for the Game Master cartridge. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Just put it all together. What do you think? It's sounding good. <laughs> now is the best time to own a cocoa. Yeah, well, that probably is true. All right. Well, that is the end of our uh, new segment. So why don't we um, take another break, and uh, we'll come back with some listener feedback. Come to the Radio Shack hideout. I'm Mr. Small, and I'm tired of big computers. Give me something that's really, really small. MC10 Small. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not big. No, no, no. MC10's got just 4K bytes. Tiny metal keys in a case that's white. Radio Shack's MC10 combined with any color television gives you a big system in a tiny package. 4K bytes. They feel right. Tiny metal keys in a case that's bite. The Himalayas, Nepal. 
You have traveled far seeking answers. Yes, I seek the ultimate happiness. You may see the master now. Your eminence, I've walked for 10 days for an audience with you. Dude, come on in here. Am I in the right place? Totally. You hold the secret of true happiness? Yeah, check it out. It's Screen Machine. The ultimate graphics text screen enhancer, Screen Machine, is a machine language extension to BASIC that enables you to easily mix high-res graphics and text in your programs. A user-definable 224-character set featuring true lowercase and graphic characters like cars, planes, tanks, and more. Support mixed text modes from 8x16 to 64x24 with full print at, tab, and comma fields. Full support of underline, subscript, superscript, reverse video, top and bottom scroll protection, double width, and full color characters. Screen Machine can be used in games, word processors, utilities. The possibilities are limitless. You're right. This is true happiness. Gnarly. I better go now. I have a 10-day walk back ahead of me. Dude, that's totally military. I took the helicopter. Screen Machine from Sugar Software. Okay, what a break. That was cool. Feeling much better. Now it's time for some feedback. <laughs> All right. Our first item of feedback today, uh, we kind of hinted at a little earlier. This uh, feedback comes from Steve Batson. He says uh, he's listening to the Coco Crew podcast, and they were talking about saying, Alexa, play the Coco Crew podcast. And my Echo Dot woke up and tried to find it. (laughs) (laughs) So that actually works, which is kind of funny because we've been doing that as a joke for a while. And uh, it's just kind of funny to think that works. You forgot the LMAO. Oh, yeah. Laughing his uh, posterior off. (laughs) 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 All right. Well, thanks, Steve, very much. Uh, It's cool to know that that actually kind of works. Um, let's see. The next one comes from L. Curtis Boyle. Uh, he says, thanks so much for inviting me to the round table discussion that became part of episode 31. We loved having you, Curtis. Uh, in fact, so much, uh, we might even have you on again this very episode. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, we have one from, uh, Tony Capolini. And Tony says, um, this is probably primarily from Mike. He says, I love the all in the family spoof. Great job on Archie and Edith's voices. Although I'm not sure Mike did both of those voices. Um, but <laughs> yeah, Joe Rowe did enough. the other voice. Yeah, Joe Rowe was Edith. <laughs> but thank you for the feedback. Thanks for the uh, compliment. Oh, very good. It. Very good. Awesome. All right. Well, that is our feedback. Um, it's a little short this month, so I'll just go ahead and say if uh, we're always happy to have your feedback, positive or negative. Um, so you can send it in uh, email or, or um, comments on Facebook or Twitter, or you could record something and uh, send it in. We might even put it on the air. Um, so well, either way, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, Neil keeps score um, and uh, <laughs> makes his day when he gets mentioned in feedback. You should see him light up. Well, why don't we uh, take another little break, and then we'll uh, be back with a little discussion among the hosts. Your Tandy Color Computer is powerful, but it's plagued with one problem. Clunky expansion. Bowtech Instruments has the solution. Quality hardwood cabinets for your color computer. Eliminate that mess on your desk by transferring your computer components into a single elegant case. 
Our beautiful wood cases have room for your color computer motherboard, disc controller, two half-height floppy disk drives, and an additional 5x7 board, such as an 80-column card. Each case is precision milled in our factory and includes a high-quality switching power supply for all of your color computer components. Each case includes a matching hardwood keyboard enclosure for your color computer keyboard. Stop fighting the mess of cables and adapters that take up all of your desk space. Make your system shine with a new hardwood case from Bowtech Instruments. Cases are available in your choice of hardwoods, oak, maple, cherry, walnut, and teak. Another quality computer product from Bowtech Instruments, Utica, Michigan, USA. All right, Coco Cruisers, welcome back uh, to, um, I think, maybe our favorite part of the show. Um, this is where the hosts pick a, a perhaps controversial topic and um, toss it around, beat it to death, maybe state a few uh, unpopular opinions, um, see what we can come up with. So the topic came up this week on the Facebook group uh, specifically about cross-posting, and this is where uh, you want to advertise something like a Maybe it's a, a, an episode of your favorite podcast, or maybe it's a, a new blog post, or maybe it's just a, a picture of, uh, you know, you dressed up like, a, I don't know, maybe like a monk going to the Coco Fest or, or something. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and uh, dressed up like Coco Cat. <laughs> and, you know, you post it to your favorite Coco group. But nowadays there's, there's several other kind of Coco-related groups. Um, possibly too many. Maybe we could add that in as part of the discussion here. But so the complaint was instead of just posting it to the most specific Coco uh, group, that people are posting them to all the Coco groups, and even some of them kind of crossing to off-topic, like um, you know, posting your your high score in a in a disc extended color basic game on the uh, Coco Nitrous Nine group where nobody cares. And so, since we got into the off-topic part there, I thought we could expand that. There's been a lot uh, of off-topic stuff on the Coco mailing list. One particular person seems to think it's funny or something <laughs> um, to just start off with. I know this is off-topic, but, and then goes on to post something really off-topic. So, uh, so here's, I'm just laying out the discussion here. How big a deal is it when you post stuff that's off-topic for the venue, whether it's a mailing list or a specific group, um, either in the, on Facebook or a group or maybe a forum, you know, topics area in a forum or, you know, a chat forum or whatever, how big a deal is it to go off topic? And then assuming you're basically on topic, how big a deal is it when you cross post and take the same information and put it in, you know, a dozen different places? Uh, which can be irritating as well. Uh, there, I laid it out. Who has an opinion? Everybody does. I do, but yeah, go ahead, Mike. <laughs> what do you think? I'd like to hear yours. Well, uh, I'll handle the uh, cross-posting first. Yeah, I don't know what a person is doing. You know, I guess it comes down to how frequently do you do it. If you're putting out something every day to six different groups, I'm, I'm sure people can get bugged by that. But... I also don't think it's wrong to cross post uh, because you're trying to reach as many people as you can. And of course we know Facebook has no filtering tools to speak of. So you just, you have to learn to, we all scroll by a dozen things that we've seen 
a bunch of times or, or ads or things we're not interested in. So I don't know what the big deal it is. I think, uh, you know, free speech has to reign here. And uh, I'm not saying that people should abuse it, but I don't, I don't think it's a big deal that people cross post uh, things to similar communities. Right. Well, I mean, people should be respectful, right? You shouldn't do things that are clearly out of line, whatever that might be. So it depends on what you're posting. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you know, if you're posting something about a cocoa, a general cocoa kind of thing, there's a pretty good chance that the people that are dragging people might be interested too, right? Because they're similar machines with similar basics and whatever else. So I don't think that's unreasonable to post both Coco and the Dragon, and then the the Brazilian guys have their group as well, so you could include that one. Um, but then, you know, there's other groups that, you know, if you're not interested, why would you join the group, right? Um, but you probably can't take it too far, like the example of uh, discussing, you know, basic programs on the OS9 group or whatever. Um, you just have to ask people to, to to have some sense about that, I guess. What do you think, Boise? I think that, you know, it comes with the territory, right? The Coco community has, ex I would say, explosive growth recently and a lot of enthusiasm, and you don't want to do anything to mute that enthusiasm or to dampen it. And it just comes down to just good management. Uh, I don't blame people like, Stevie Strobridge for posting on every group that there's about to be a, a Coco Talk live coming on. I think that's great, spreading the word out, getting it as much as possible. You know, we kind of have to, you know, it's kind of a good problem to have, right? Unlike the off-topic posting, which is really probably the worst of thing you could do, in my opinion. Uh, that doesn't really take a lot of brains to get right. Yeah, uh, we saw we saw a perfect example of that just a few days ago on the uh, Facebook Coco page when someone had posted a, a semi-relevant, I'd say pretty relevant, <clears throat> post about a, a a video game designer who happened to be of a minority race, and then someone uh, really got in there and just tried to spoil the cabbage, so to speak, with some really, uh, you know, incendiary comments. Right. So you know you, that's an example of posting something that is fairly on topic or fairly relevant and just going hog wild. So uh, I think people have to be responsible and considerate of each other and uh, give everybody a little leeway, especially whenever it's material that is relevant. Now, if you're just outlandishly posting stuff that makes no sense, you know, you, you really should excuse yourself and not do that. That's my opinion. I think along with that is if, if you're the reader, you need to, uh, you know, also not react violently and explosively to something you might disagree with. Just, you know, right. you're free to say nothing. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, that's something that <laughs> right. a lot of people don't seem to be able to do these days is just be quiet. <laughs> 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 but, um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, like for the cross-posting, okay, sometimes you'll see the same thing four or five times. There's been once or twice I, I've said, you know, like, Ooh, Stevie, couldn't you slow down a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, it, like I said, it's no worse. You know, I have a cousin that posts just ridiculous, dumb political stuff all the time, and then she'll throw down at the end of it. And if you don't agree, just go ahead and unfriend me. And it's like, oh my god, <laughs> you know, what I mean? <laughs> like I'm, well, I'm, I'm not human if I disagree. You know, anyway. <laughs> 
So we see, we see stuff like that all the time. Um, and, you know, we kind of just ignore it or scroll past it, or maybe you don't totally ignore it, but you, you don't make a big stink about it, right? And so uh, I think, you know, if you, you, you've expressed an interest in Cocoa stuff by joining the groups, um, yeah, okay, sometimes you get a little extra, but I, I think that's a good problem to have. Yeah. Um, there's nothing worse than being part of a dead community. Um you know, there's plenty of dead machines out there that you could post, and some of them were always kind of dead, like the the Mattel Aquarius, for example. There's just <laughs> nothing out there, right? Yeah. But uh, um, and probably for good reason. But um, I don't know. But like I said, now like Boise was saying, the off-topic stuff to me that's almost like an assault. It's like you're stealing my time. Um, you know, I, I go to, a, especially with our mailing list or, or something where I have to dig a little deeper to get there. And then you post the stuff that is just totally off topic about, or, or, or tenuously on topic, like, oh, well, I can run an emulator on a PC. So therefore I'm going to discuss how to, how to install OSs for PCs so that I can run an emulator on them. Well, that's pretty much a, a pretty long stretch there, and I think you're kind of a jerk when you make that argument, honestly. <laughs> so, anyway, so I've said that. Um, Neil, I don't think we've heard from you. What do you got to say? No, I was just I, I agree with what Mike was saying. Uh, you know, basically, if uh, if the information goes to all the groups, like if it's you know if it's relevant, then I think that's fine. I mean, a case like you know Stevie's show or even our podcast. You know, you might want to advertise that to even uh, non-Cogo groups because, you know, people oh, yeah. listen to different podcasts. It doesn't have to be their own machine. Um, but, yeah, off topic, uh, that yeah, that's definitely, uh, you know, you don't want to do that. That's uh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, I think another way that things get off topic is that people pirate subjects. You know, it started off as a discussion of something legitimate, and then it started talking, you know, then people yeah. start having a, yeah. uh, a thread of 50 messages talking about their kids or something. And that's, oh, oh, yeah. Know, oh, yeah. A... But I, I had <laughs> one of those or, well, you know, we, we used to race those down on the salt flats back in 57 or <laughs> whatever. While I was, I want to say while I was uh, repairing TV transmitters. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, you know, we see that a lot on the mailing list, but I, I see that on, on Facebook, too. Um you know, that, like you say, that stuff just kind of flows off into nowhere, and um, yeah, the title doesn't uh, correspond with the information. So yeah. I think it's good netiquette to kind of ask yourself: uh, Is that happening? Is my response going to actually be kind of in line with the topic of this thread? Uh, and if not, there's nothing that says you can't make a response, but why don't you make a different response with your own topic or, or something like that? And yeah. if it is totally off topic for the group, then maybe you shouldn't make the response at all. Yeah. yeah. I, I guess the other thing is, uh, uh, you know, seeing seeing people negotiate prices for things, you know, those are things that should be really, really taken, yeah. you know, privately offline off of the cocoa list. Uh, I don't really think. You know, there's a there's a line you're you're crossing there, and and we don't yeah. we're just not interested. We're not interested in your ten messages about the price you're negotiating. Right. Or what time you're going to meet down at the at the Sonic on on such and such Avenue? <laughs> right. You know, you, I mean, you have to remember the golden rule, right? 
do unto others as you would have others do unto you. I think sometimes, though, some people don't even care if they that is done to them, so maybe that doesn't apply. So <laughs> yeah, right. Well, there's um, I forget the name of the you know there's an axiom or whatever about networking is uh you know be be uh, liberal with what you accept and and judicious or conservative or whatever the term is with what you admit. And so basically, you know, okay, people are going to say some stuff once in a while that you think is off topic or inappropriate or whatever, but you can often you can let it go. Just try not to be the one doing it. And I think if everybody would follow that rule we'd all be a lot better off. So there, man law. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, any, any, uh, anything to add? Any other take on this? All right. Beaten to death. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, um, that should hold us in. Uh, we're going to take another break and get on with the rest of the uh, rest of the show. So please stay tuned. Why buy just a video game from Atari or Intellivision? Invest in the TRS-80 color computer from Radio Shack. Unlike games, it has a real computer keyboard. With the TRS-80 color computer, the whole family can learn computing at home. Plays great games, too. Under $300, the TRS-80 color computer. Only from Radio Shack. A Tandy company. Is this you? Oh my god, I've got 40 pages to print! Tired of waiting on a slow serial-attached printer? End the waiting with Blue Streak Ultima, the ultimate serial-to-parallel adapter. Wow, I'll have this report ready in time for the meeting! Just connect Blue Streak Ultima to your Coco's built-in serial port and connect the other end to any printer with a 36-pin Centronics-compatible parallel printer port. Blue Streak Ultima works with any version Coco. Seven switchable baud rates, 300 to 19.2. Select the desired baud rate with the easy-to-use selector knob. No jumpers, no hassle, just faster printing. Try it on your system for 30 days, risk-free. If you're not totally satisfied with the performance of Blue Streak Ultima, return it for a full refund. Blue Streak Ultima comes with a one-year warranty and costs just $39.95. Blue Streak Ultima, the ultimate serial-to-parallel converter. All right, all right. Welcome back, Coco Cruisers, to uh, an interview segment. Uh, this time for our interviewee, uh, we have uh, asked um, Mr. L. Curtis Boyle to join us. Hello, everyone. Um, yeah, Mr. Boyle, of course, is a longtime Coco uh, uh, notable uh, and also one of the uh, major co-hosts of the other uh, Coco podcast, <laughs> Coco Talk. Podcast we shall not name. <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, so uh, we've had a few other, others of him. Uh, well, he's actually already been on the show as part of a roundtable, but we've had some others of, of uh, his crew over for individual attention, and we thought it was time to get Curtis on as well. So welcome, Curtis. How are you doing? Not too bad. I'm glad you saved the worst for last. <laughs> well, I'm sure we could probably pull a few more. Who knows? Yeah, it won't be the last, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, well, let's see. So... Um, uh, so Curtis, um, I don't know where to start here. Um, so you've been around a long time. Um, are you a Coco kid? Did you have a, a Coco as a young person? Yes, I did. I got a Coco One 4K in September, I think it was, of 1981. 
okay. right after grade eight graduation. Um, I we had a Commodore PET at the school when I was in grade seven, which got me interested in computers. And then the following year, they got an Apple II Plus, so that was like, oh wow, color. And uh, <laughs> then I said, well, I'd like to get this. I'm, 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 I'm staying after school. I was going in early. You know, we were myself and Dwayne Downing, uh, another former Coke user. Um, we got so interested in computers that we'd go to the school at about 6.30 in the morning and wait for the janitor to unlock the doors so we could get onto it. Which, uh, <laughs> wow. He didn't like that much because we also stayed late afterwards, too, and he'd be telling us, I want to go home and eat. You know, just go home already. So um, we got hooked on it. And, and then the Apple II Plus, I really wanted to get one of those until I found the price. And uh, the parents would not spend that much money on it, so I settled for a Cocoa. But then I also discovered the Cocoa had stuff like a sound command, which the Apple II did not. You had to use peaks and stuff to rattle the speaker. So I just kind of fell in love with it after that and slowly upgraded, uh, you know, 16K. Then I had extended basic and then I went to 64K. And then when the Cocoa 3 came out, I got that and just kept on going. Cool. Cool. Very exciting. Um, so were you an early adopter um, when Handy started to bring OS 9 out uh, for the Cocoa? Um, I I briefly flirted with level one when it came out, probably about 84, 85. But I didn't really start getting into it until the Cocoa 3. And then I bought it and didn't really know what to do with it. And then at the time, I was working at uh, McKenzie Ray Tickets, and they had a PDP-11 that was running all their industrial size line printers to print tickets. And one of the circuit boards blew. And PDPs by 1988-89 were already quite rare to get parts for, especially in Saskatoon. So we were basically you know, stuck with nothing to be able to print, and we had to make major league sports teams ready to go. And then I remembered that uh, I had a Disto Supercontroller 2 with the uh, 3-in-1 board, which had a parallel port, plus I had a serial-to-parallel interface for the Bitbanger. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what? I've got a computer at home that I can drive two printers at once. Maybe I should bring it in. And they said, yo, anything. Anything we can do because it's going to take us two weeks to get a replacement board. So I brought it in and fired up Baseco 9 for the first time and kind of went through the manual figuring out. I already know how to do extended basics, so it wasn't too much of a jump. And within about two days, we had the jobs back up and running again in the Cocoa. And then after that, and I think we repaired the PDP once. And then we discovered the Cocoa was easier to program for. It was just as quick. Um, we actually hooked up terminals and stuff to it, too. And then we eventually just retired the PDP because it was like it was more cost on a PDP to replace one board than to buy an entire hard drive system and eight terminals <laughs> for our Cocoa. So we ended up with a monster system, which we had made a video for Lonnie Falcon Rainbow at one point, but unfortunately got lost over the years. But at the uh, the end of it, we had 120 meg of hard drive storage on two hard drives. We had eight serial terminals running at 4800 baud and a one meg uh, 609 base Cocoa 3 that ran the printers, including laser printers, later on for probably about 10 years. Wow. wow. That's wow. fantastic. That's pretty cool. Now, uh, as you mentioned, that's uh, Saskatoon. Uh, is that, I guess that's Saskatchewan. Is that right? Yep. And uh, and that's where you call home still to this day? Yep. Yep. And wow. Bill Noble, one of the other guys that did Nitrous 9, the very first version there, he's from here too. He also worked at the same ticketing companies and, and did the cocoa programming there for that stuff too. And he's he's no longer in Saskatoon. He's in a little smaller town about an hour east of here called Humboldt. But At some point in all that, uh, you and Bill um, got uh, – um, well, curious or dissatisfied with the stock OS9 or, or what, where you, you started to tear it apart and then uh, reassemble it uh, for to become Nitrous uh, 9? Not, not really like that. I mean, we were we were downloading patches, like when Kevin Darling released, you know, some of the patches for graph-driven stuff, the Christmas patches, it's called. I mean, we were getting some speed-ups with 
Oh, what's nine is it wise? And we got no halt hard drive controllers, no old floppy controllers, and that helped speed things up too. And we got, you know, 6552 based serial cards, which ran better than 6551s, like the RS-232 pack from Airshack. So we got the Eliminator yeah. and a few other things. We were running some pretty decent hardware, pretty decent clip. And then when the 6309 kind of got leaked on CompuServe and stuff from that uh, Japanese publication, and Kevin Darling did a quick test just to see if this was all true, and he, he did a little sample program hand-assembled uh, just to test the TFM command, and it worked. He was quite surprised. And uh, then Chris Burke came out with PowerBoost, and uh, we'd been reading all the specs of it and learning how to, you know, fiddle with it ourselves there. And then we were reading about this native mode thing, and it says you'll get about a 10 to 15% speed increase pretty well on everything instantly without having to recode nothing. And we went, geez, that would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> so the the impetus for doing what turned out to be Nitrous 9 was actually just to get native mode working because Chris did the original version of PowerBoost just in emulation mode. So we used, you know, TFM and some of the other special instructions some extra registers, but he couldn't do anything too extensive because, uh, you know, hardware interrupts and stuff are different between the two for what registers they push and pull if you're on native versus emulation mode. And to be honest, and I'll reveal this here, I mean, when, when Bill and Wes Gale first talked about it, because they went to a show, I think it was a Pacific Northwest Fest up near Seattle or somewhere in there, somewhere in Washington. Mm -hmm. And uh, they'd seen Power Boost, and they were talking between themselves that we should do a native mode version of Power Boost, basically. Um, and when Bill came back and was staying, I was going, like, I'd, I'd never tried disassembling an operating system before. Like, I, I just thought this was rocket science. <laughs> well, everybody does that. Yeah. So, I mean, Bill was saying, yeah, we're going to disassemble uh, OS 9 and um, redo it so it runs in native mode with the native mode stack. And I went, yeah, sure you are. And uh, I just kind of poo-pooed the whole thing, and I watched him struggle, and he'd try to change OS 9 P1 or the REL and boot, and it would crash and crash and crash. And I was just kind of snickering in the background. When he first got it to actually boot up the full kernel, and then it loaded the entire OS 9 boot file and then crashed, I kind of went, oh, you guys actually are making it now. I mean, now it's <laughs> starting to work. So that's when I finally joined in. But it, uh, I wasn't the easily convinced one out of the batch. It was the other two. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I imagine that's the kind of project that you almost have to be completely done before it even looks like it's going to work at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of work there, I can no doubt. Yeah, well, watching OS 9 boot come up, and then when we finally got up to the point where CC3 Go and the shell first came, and then that crashed because we had missed a couple of things. But that, that took about a month or two at least just to get to that point. But that was that was a, a revelation moment that we actually got it up to the point where you could read stuff on the screen besides OS 9 boot and failed. Yeah. No, yeah, I definitely uh, – I can imagine the feeling there. It sounds quite a bit like my early experiences uh, – bringing up Linux uh, on a machine, and uh, and I had the source code for that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wish well, we'd had access to the stuff. Like Kevin and them were already had been working on that level two upgrade project. Of course, none of us knew that. And, uh, you know, they had the whole thing disassembled, and I think they even had the source for microware at that point. And uh, we just had to do everything clean room because we didn't have any of that stuff, and we were just learning how the OS worked. And thank God for Kevin's Inside OS 9 Level 2 book and the OS 9 technical reference part of the manual actually are both combined is actually a pretty darn good resource. Yeah. And uh, it was enough for us to figure out how everything worked. Cool, cool. Now, so originally Nitrous 9 was distributed as a patch set, is that right? Yes, because of legal issues. Sure. And uh, how long did, did uh, it persist like that before... Um... You, you, I Before you we guessed trying. that we had changed enough of it to be legally different. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, I think it was around 1.16, I think we started distributing it without being a massive bunch of patches. Cool. 
So it was it was a fair bit because we went from 1.001 all the way up to 1.16 before before we tried doing that. Very exciting. Awesome. Quite a few versions. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, if I could just hit one more area as an opening survey, and then maybe we'll turn it over for some <laughs> some other people. Um, uh, so those of uh, in the Cocoa community that are uh, OS9 ambiguous or oblivious or whatever the term is there might still be familiar with you because you have a, a pretty well-known website that covers um, uh, Cocoa Games. Yes, and I really site. have to get back to it, but I keep getting distracted with Nitrous 9 stuff. And so I'm looking through, you, it looks like your earliest change log entry is from uh, December of the year 2000. So what, 17 years ago now? Yeah, I was running it on our local free serve, uh, which was a links based hosted thing um, on some Unix system command line all here. And I was actually creating the web pages at that point on the Cocoa and then <laughs> uploading them to them and then hosting the site from there. Wow, that's cool. Um, so uh, in the process of that, and I, I, I noticed that you, of course, have a, a contact with a lot of the original authors and many of which have given you permission to distribute um, their games. Mm -hmm. um, so how did you how did you accomplish that much contact? Did people see what you're doing and reach out to you or did you? Very rarely. Um, most of the time it was me trying to hunt them down. Yeah. Because um, most people, if they're game programmers at that proficiency level back in the day, most of them stayed in the computer industry. So they definitely have a presence on the web, whether okay. it's their resume or whether they're working for a different company or they're on Facebook or MySpace or whatever it was at the time. So I usually <laughs> okay. just, I, I would blindly find, you know, this guy has the right name. He's roughly the right age if it kind of, you know, explained, you know, if he was at the right age to be a programmer in his late teens, early 20s, which most of them were in the early 80s. Sure. In the micro markets. So that would just fire off emails. And I got some false positives. I I'd found uh, Douglas Morgan of, of, of that I was hoping was the Dungeons of Daggerath, Douglas Morgan. It turned out to be a completely different guy who had a very interesting history in computers with IBM on his own, but nothing to do with what I was looking for. <laughs> <laughs> He's now a painter in uh, BC. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah, there's um, there's uh, some guy uh, out there, his um, last name Linville. I think he might even be John Linville that uh, is out there is a, like a VC or something out in Silicon Valley. I've uh, never actually bumped into the guy, but uh, <laughs> once in a while there's been a little bit of confusion. Um, yeah. I haven't <laughs> seen a second Boise Peach yet, though. That's a really unique <laughs> name. So. That is you a unique name. Um, well, okay, well, like I hinted at, uh, I've kind of uh, run us through a, kind of a survey and probably missed a f quite a bit, but um, put a few dots on the board. Um, maybe uh, some of my co-hosts here would like to help fill in. Who, who has a question for Curtis? Oh, this is Mike. I'm, I'm, I've got a, a, I guess my first question is, where did you get your first Coco? Radio Shack. <laughs> there in Saskatoon? Yeah. Yeah, we had a bunch so you, of Radio Shacks here, and we had one or two managers that actually were fairly computer literate. And, I mean, Dwayne and I used to hang out at the Radio Shack stores after we got booted out of the school. We'd go there in the <laughs> evenings. It was within walking distance, and we would just sit there. I think we used the Model 3 a little bit before the Coco first came out. But the Coco, I mean, had color and sound. It was quite interesting. And um, they would let us just sit there and program because it actually attracted customers. Oh, what are these little kids doing, you know, type thing. Right. And... Um, they let us go through the basic manuals, which was really cool because when we got our first computers in 81, we had a bit of a head start then on the Cocoa itself. 
And we, neither one of us could afford program packs because here, because the Canadian dollar at the time was so low, I think the average card was like 40 bucks. And, uh, you know, as being grade eight, grade nine, there's no way we could afford stuff like that very often. So we had to program all of our own stuff in basic. And then, uh, you know, you had this you had this massive system running the uh, the printers for a while. Uh, what did you graduate to when you finally uh, let go of the Cocos there? Um, well, we eventually graduated to Windows. Um, I think we waited till Windows XP. Wow. Because wow, uh, Windows 95 and 98 weren't completely preemptive multitasking yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, if we had to, you know, copy or, or format a floppy to copy something from one of the salesmen, it would just freeze the printer dead until the format was done. Because <laughs> Windows 95 still halted the operating right. system until the format was finished. So, right. so we're running these printers that are supposed to be running at three to 600 lines per minute, like full lines, 132 columns. And uh, it would just freeze dead for like a minute and a half. <laughs> which wasn't very impressive, so we just put it back on the Cocoa because, yeah, we can copy stuff. We had, you know, utilities for copying PC-DOS stuff on there, too, and it didn't even hesitate. So, yeah, I think Windows XP was the first Windows we actually jumped to afterwards. So that's a long time ago now, but that's still a pretty good service length uh, <laughs> up yeah. until then. Yeah. Very impressive. Well, boys, have you been quiet? Yeah, I wanted other people to get a chance. <laughs> <laughs> Neil, did you have any questions on the game type stuff? Because that's more up your alley. Yeah, actually, actually I just want to say, uh, you know, I really enjoy your website. That's actually how I first found out about you um, when I got back into the Coco scene in 2005. You know, the first thing you do is you start Googling and uh, looking for, you know, links and uh, Coco information, and your website came up right away. Okay. And uh, I spent hours on that webpage. I mean, just reading, uh, like, you know, even all the interviews. I like how you post that, you know, the, the emails that you've had, yeah. correspondence. Uh, back and forth. Yeah, and I mean, to be honest, I mean, my 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 home based business, um, which is still in the ticketing industry, um, has been growing the last few years. So my time has been getting less and less for that. And plus, I've kind of gotten back into the Nitrous Nine thing and, and programming the Coco somewhat. Right. So I've been leaving less time for the games thing, but I really got to like take a, I don't know, a weekend or something and just kind of get back in because there's so many new games and stuff out, and there's literally I think last count about 600 I haven't put on there yet. So I mean, there's wow. lots yeah. of work to do, and and it, it takes a fair bit of research because I don't just throw in a you know a screenshot and no, I here's the game. That. I try to do a bit of research, like when did it get released, who were the original authors. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, very released it. it's a great website. It and, and it you, is you, you show you show all the levels too, which is nice. If if, if I can, can make it that far, and back yeah. then, <laughs> especially with some of the emulators, it was impossible. I could do it on the real thing, but I didn't have a good digital camera, and, and the screenshots didn't look that good. Now. Some of the emulators have gotten better. We've got, you know, proper joysticks that work with some of them. So that's another reason to get back into it, because I think I could start finishing off some of the levels that I don't have on there now, and I could probably do better on some of the games that I was so bad at that I couldn't even take, like, one screenshot, like the title screen. That was about as far as I could get. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. No uh, doubt. Some of those games are hard. Yeah. Well, maybe get Steve to help with playing. <laughs> <laughs> we'll never get off the first level. That's right. we do that. <laughs> The title screen, the game over screen. That's all you get. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> well, so, um, yeah, so uh, so a couple of years ago, this this kind of funny guy started making these uh, videos and on YouTube. Uh, I assume you probably hit on him about the time we did. What, what did you think of that at first, uh, Steve's um, games on YouTube and Coco stuff? It, Were you surprised? I, it, was a, it was a mixed bag. <laughs> Um, it was really good that he was doing Cocoa Viz because I mean that was one machine that did not get a lot of support with old 
video games being played on YouTube. There was a few other people that did it. There's a guy in England that does, how does he describe it? I play games really badly. He's even <laughs> right. worse than Steve, so he's, he's accurate. Uh, <laughs> and he swears a lot, too, which, I mean, Steve rage quits, too, so it's kind of a common theme, I guess. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it was impressive that he was doing it, and he was going through his nostalgia childhood stuff, which is the same reason I did the web page in the first place. And um, but I also noticed that um, he didn't have a lot of knowledge of the history of some of them. Sure. Um, so he had a lot of inaccuracies and sometimes it, like he didn't read manuals and he still doesn't to this day. So, you know, he'd <laughs> occasionally get a game and try playing it and get frustrated. Ah, this game sucks. I can't do anything with less because you're not playing it. right. <laughs> so, uh, the fire button is a space bar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. What do you mean? There's a left turn control. What? Um <laughs> So at, at the first time I met him, I was leaving comments on some of his videos, you know, corrections or tips and tricks and maybe a little bit of the history of the game and then pointed him to my website. So we started using that as a reference too, which helped. And then he was, uh, he wanted to go through some of the uh, joystick controllers because he just remembered basically the Deluxe and the Black Beauties. And I said, well, Rayshack actually sold a bunch more than that and there's some third-party ones too. And, and he said, I never knew about that stuff. Mm -hmm. So then uh, we set up to do our first interview together, a video one, and that's when I kind of did demos of like the Wyco trackball controller and the pistol grip joystick and some of the other ones. So that's kind of what started the whole relationship off. And then we just started guesting on game videos and stuff, and then the podcast came out of that. And <laughs> Cool. And you've all suffered ever since. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so it's at least it's voluntary suffering, right? We can <laughs> yeah, you can always turn us off. <laughs> So yeah, so I'm uh, uh, kind of still amazed. I don't think anybody expected uh, the the chit chat before Cocoa Fest to turn in. Well, you know, it was a weekly thing at the early on, but uh, I don't think anybody expected it to go on for a week after a week. Were you at all surprised by that? Yes, um, we we originally planned to do some shows just to kind of drum up the interest in Cocoa Fest, and also for anybody that was releasing any new products, if they didn't want to keep it a surprise right to the fest itself, they could do a preview. Sure. You know, to encourage people to go in to, and to buy the stuff. So we were expecting we would probably do a few shows afterwards, you know, just to kind of summarize what happened and maybe run through some of the new products as they came out or, you know, some maybe some interviews with some interesting people we met down there. But uh, I, I don't think either of us really expected the show to continue and not be just complete blather, 90 percent <laughs> maybe, but not complete blather. <laughs> uh, since, but actually, there's there's enough happening and there's enough excitement in the cocoa world in general right now that uh, it. it we keep finding stuff to talk about. Yeah. And I mean, that's yeah. why you guys have five hour episodes now too. So. That's true. Well, I mean, <laughs> it is funny. Uh, there used to be one of, and probably still is some of our feedback is that oh, your episodes are too long or whatever. It's like, well, what part should we have left out is really kind of what it comes down to. But um, it is kind of amazing how much activity there is. Uh, the new segments are so long or whatever. Seems like there's always something going on. Uh, maybe we don't have the the highest bar for uh, <laughs> for covering <laughs> stuff, but um, still, there's stuff to talk about that's not just you know random chit chat, and it's uh, usually something worthwhile. Yeah, and one segment you got you do in particular that I really do like, and, and Stephen, I've talked about this, and he agrees with it too, is that you you'll bring in a story of something that would be cool if it was on the Coco, but isn't about the Coco right at the moment. Right. And you'll you'll bring up something that was done on a Commodore or an Apple II or, or a Tier City Model 3 or whatever. And that has actually sometimes inspired people to go, oh, yeah, we should do that. So that's that's been a really nice thing. Uh, we don't tend to concentrate that on that side of things that much, so I'm glad you do that. 
Yeah, yeah. That's cool. We've got one this uh, month that's uh, where someone did um, uh, a machine learning on a Commodore 64. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're hoping to see a network of Cocos prop up and uh, solve uh, some uh, big problems. <laughs> like, like Spectre and Meltdown. Well, there you go. <laughs> Yeah, I've been needing a program to recognize dot matrix numbers. So. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> Could have used that at work. <laughs> yeah, okay, there, there you go. So I don't, I don't want to delve into too much of a technical discussion, but obviously Curtis and I have OS 9 in common and the work on it. But before I get to that, Curtis, you attended the Rainbow Fest, right? Yeah, uh, I went to Rainbow Fest and from 86 till what was the last one, 90 or 91? And did you go to the ones in Chicago and in you in uh, uh, was it uh, Brunswick, um, New Jersey? Uh, no, just the ones in Chicago. I couldn't afford to go to both. So I'm just curious. Tell me what were your impressions of those uh, of those fests? Uh, I've never been to one because uh, I just wasn't able to go until uh, a little later. Uh, um, curious about what you thought. The, about the biggest difference between those and even the first Coca Fest was the size. Now, by the last one or two, was starting to die down. But the first one I went to in '86, the year before the Coca Three, um, was at its first show because this was in April or May, I think it was, and the Coca got released later. Coca Three got released later. Um, there was literally like twelve, thirteen thousand people. It was wall to wall packed, and it was a huge high wow. Regency Woodfield. If you've ever been the one across from the Woodfield Mall in Chicago or Schaumburg, to be technical. I mean, we were in that hotel at the same time that the uh, Chicago Bears were. Mm -hmm. So this, you know, these big, huge football players with two gorgeous women you know, on each arm type thing, mixing up with a 10,000 geeks that are rented out the major part of the hall. And it was just packed. I remember the the first one, I think it was the Saturday, um, the early afternoon, you literally could not move. I mean, you were elbow to elbow. It was just that packed. Did you say twelve to 13,000 people? Yeah, I mean, that was the official rainbow attendance. I mean, Steve has mentioned that they did count people twice. So you could take that in half and then add a bit because not, you know, everybody was there both days. But it was still in the thousands and thousands. It was like at least seven, 8,000 unique people. Awesome. And, the, and the the first fest after the Coco 3 was announced, that was, a, that was a joy to go to, too. I don't think it was quite as big as the one the year before. But um, the excitement was palpable, like, throughout. That would have been 87. Seven, yeah. I mean, Steve was there, Rick was there, a bunch of others were there, Marty Goodman, all the rest, and everybody was just all hyped up of what you could do with this new machine. It's sort of an aspirational question. As far as the current state of Nitrous 9, you're kind of getting back into it, which I think is great because it, it could use some additional interest in terms of developing it and bringing it further. What do you see as the things you would like it to do uh, going forward, kind of the grand visions of the operating system? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I think much of it's probably in sync with yours. You know, I mean, expanding development tools and, and you know, getting some larger scale apps done. I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to focus on right now is kind of the part of the ease of use project, and this is inspired by Nick Morentes. Because, I mean, Nick had sometimes called me on Skype. He said, you know, I heard there's this program that sounds pretty cool. It's under OS 9. I'm going to install it. Can you just help guide me through because he's not familiar with OS 9? And then, you know, some install script would go batty, and then he'd, he's like Steve. He rage quits pretty quick. And he would just, ah, oh, this stupid operating system. It can't install nothing. This always happens. And and that was his, been his major complaint for years. And I, I finally, when I was getting back into it, I said, you know what? We, we do need to make this because there's this divide. And this has been around since the 80s. I mean, the divide between the RSDOS, Disk Extended Basic, and the OS 9 crowd. And 
kind of poo-pooing each other. I mean, the game players or game writers are saying, you know, we, we can't use OS9. It slows me down too much. And the OS9 people are saying, well, we can write stuff like on Zip and have real terminal programs and, you know, that kind of thing. So there's always been this kind of divide. And I was trying to come up with a way to make it a bit more user-friendly. The install process for a lot of stuff because of, you know, different drive paths and people have their mm-hmm. systems set up differently with different font colors as defaults and everything else kind of made it hard. So what we decided to do after some discussion between a few of us was we're going to create a hard drive image, which means we don't have to worry about dealing with floppies and what you can fit on a floppy. And I have to load this from this floppy and swap them to get this to work and that kind of stuff. That was one thing was that we're going to create a hard drive image so we don't have those limitations. Two, and this was kind of inspired by Kevin Darling when he wrote his little history of the OS 9 Level 2 upgrade that he published on Composer years back, is that one thing that he kind of regretted even before it got canceled was that they were trying to write it in the spec to still run under 120K. And he said it's it's not really designed to run in 120K. It can, but you're crippling it. It's like trying to run, you know, Windows on a 2-gig machine these days or something. Mm-hmm. So we decided well, we're going to make 512K the base for this ease of use thing because then you don't have to worry about running out of memory every time you try right. to run something. And, sure. And, and it just makes things a heck of a lot easier. Um, so that's the base we went with, and then I decided I'm going to start pre-installing stuff. I decided to use MultiView. I, there's some other alternatives out there like MShell, but MShell is more of a file manager. It's not a program right. launcher. And to get people that are totally alien to OS 9 and don't use Linux and don't use the command line in Windows or Mac, uh, we wanted to get a point-and-click interface. And mm-hmm. uh, we are going to install MShell on it, so if you have to do a bunch of file manipulation, it's a lot better at it than, than uh, GShell and uh, MultiView will ever be. But I wanted to have something that you could just double-click a program to launch it, double-click to go into a folder. And I'd already done work on G-Shell, you know, back in the right. late 90s. I remember that. So um, we've been just basically getting the basic stuff set up. I've got into G-Shell, and I've been making some notes of some additions and changes I want to do, and some you I discussed like 17, 18 years ago when I was passing the Nitrous 9 stuff off to you. So I'm going to start implementing some of that stuff too. But basically just have it so that once this entire project is done, it's going to have like just about every program we can find, every game, every, you know, app, every every uh, utility that's GUI-based, and even the ones that are command line-based, and have it all installed with all the paths already pre-set up, and then just you know, give some directions. If you want to run the C compiler, this is how you do it. If you want to run Basic 9 with, you know, this graphics library, this is how you do that. And then have it all set up so that people just download this one big hard drive image, and they can install it on a Cocoa SDC for real hardware. They can install it in MAME. They can install a VCC right. and just run it. And if they, they can get as technical into it as they want. We're going to put everything on there. So if you want to you know, carry on like you and I have been doing, doing assembly and C and everything else, go right ahead. Right. If you just want to play all the old games, that's fine too. It's it's set up to cover everybody is what we're trying to do. Yeah. So that's that's an interesting point. I think that you made a good point about ease of use being a, the – Sort of the aspirational goal is to make it so that anybody can just start using it right away. I think yeah. what makes OS 9 interesting, and you, I don't know if you agree with me or not, but is that I think OS 9 as an operating system is very cool, very powerful, but the cocoa is like squeezing on both sides, <laughs> constraining it, and, and, and I think it was starting to kind of get, it was, it was trying to do too much with too little, uh, especially when you're talking about OS 9 Level 2 and MultiView, and it was very interesting work. It was almost academic in nature to be able to get the operating system to a point where you could say there is a multi-user, multitasking OS running on this 8-slash-16-bit computer, which was very cool, right? 
mm-hmm. but at some point you get it's it sort of starts popping around the seams and there's not a lot of utility you can get out of it a because the memory limitation of the 6809 being a 64k address space for processes to live in even though there are ways to get around that mm-hmm. and b the speed at which the processor runs right yeah. When you see OS9 running on like uh, you know a fast modern PC or or, or ARM board or things like that, it's a totally different experience. Yep. And I, we did fiddle with OS9000 at work a little bit briefly. Yeah. One thing I missed on it though was the the windowing system, not not the graphical part, but just hitting the clear key to go between hardware windows. Yes. Like that's lickety yeah. fast. Yeah. And it ran great. So I mean, like I said, we did run the business on it for ten years. So up until I think we finally retired it around 2000 2001. But yeah, no, you you've got a good point there, and I mean, part of it's the retroness of it all. I mean, part of it's going back to my childhood or mm-hmm. early adulthood, anyway, and and part of it's the, uh, and I'm sure you probably feel the same way in some some ways, that you've always wondered if you had the skill level back then, uh-huh. or if other people had the skill level programming back then that say a Sockmaster or somebody else does these days. You know, what what could the Coco have done? The what if scenario? You know, if we could have released Donkey Kong in 1987. As opposed to you know yeah. in the 2000s, like what what would what would have changed for RadioShack? What would have changed for the market? Right. And I've exactly always had that curiosity, like you know, how far could you push the machine? How far could you push the operating system? And um, that's part of the reason I'm doing it. And then part of it's just the retro in general. Just I enjoy you know revisiting it and also seeing that you know it was competitive at the time. But I know I don't expect to like retire my my Mac here for work and start running on my Coco again. <laughs> no, of course not. Of course not. I think you're. I think you're right. I think it's just the, it's the the longing to see something, to completion that you've always wanted to see in your childhood, but either because of obviously lack of fast hardware that allows us to assemble and compile, in a cross-hosted manner, very very fast and iteratively develop at a rate that was unheard of back then, and and to see all of that come together and to uh, watch it run on a cocoa and make it do the things you wish it would have done back then that it could have done yes had had the bits on the floppy been arranged in the right way right which is ultimately what what we're doing we're fighting to basically get this one huge number uh, at a certain arrangement so we can have the software run correctly but now we can do that much faster so I think that's the drive for me and others is to see that uh, to see that run yeah. Yeah, that's the same thing here. I mean, even if I'm using the the built-in stock tools, which I do a little bit probably more so than you guys do, just just because of the nostalgia, and also I'm too lazy to learn all the new stuff. Um, but just I mean, just firing a VCC and like cranking the simulated megahertz way up. I mean, I can ASM even the rogue source, which is like I don't know four or five hundred k at this point with comments. Uh, it gets it's done like literally in five seconds. Yeah, it's just amazingly fast. Since you, I think you kind of touched on uh, on this, you're talking about playing the old games or whatever. So moving some of the games, like the the stuff that was actually in the stocked on the shelves, but for you know, <clears throat> OS9 games offered by Radio Shack back in the day, moving them forward to play on Nitrous Nine, it seems like there's at least a handful of weird issues that pop up. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm not sure. It seems like I've heard you talk about some with Rogue. Seems like there's another one that's been particularly problematic that I know Barry Nelson had um, talked about. I forget which one it is now, but and usually they're solved by something, you know, a little esoteric. You know, using a, a different driver descriptor or changing the descriptors to point so it's this way or that or whatever. Um, is this something that has to be solved? Um, 
you know, in a, a one-off sort of fashion for each game, or are there more systemic uh, kinds of approaches that can be taken to make sure that compatibility uh, remains while the operating system advances? It, it depends on the game. Um, there's there's bits of both. Some of them can be solved with, like, better driver support. I mean, Bruce Ice did that a bit when he did the VRN driver, mm-hmm. which uh, covers, you know, the Sierra games and Flight Sim 2, which is basically for timer stuff. Cavewalker, which I think the ones you're referring to that Barry yeah, Nelson yeah. was having problems with here, is, is the reason it doesn't work is because it's hard-coded. And it's hard-coded to reprogram the PIA interrupt, kind of bypassing OS 9 entirely. And that definitely causes problems on, on level two, Nitrous 9, because we've changed and optimized the entire RQ handling system so that it doesn't quite work the way Cavewalker's expecting it to. So that one's going to be an individual patch, but the reason it needs it is because they cheated in the first place. They're completely <laughs> bypassing the right. OS. Right, right. <laughs> so it, it's on a case-by-case basis. Like Home Publisher, I had to patch for Nitrous 9 too because they installed a whole bunch of their own software interrupt replacement routines and some additional ones. So um, the register stacks for native mode were all wrong, so it was crashing left and right when we first did it. So I had to disassemble that, figure out what all these new calls were, change the register stack offsets to accommodate the E and F registers, and uh, then it started working and didn't speed it up much because it's pretty sloppily written. But um, <laughs> yeah, it, it, some are on an individual case by case basis. I think some of the stuff like I do want to tackle the Sierra one. I know Robert Gold did some patches for it to run it on greater than 512K because it was also hard coded to do read MMU registers directly off the gimme. Oh. And of course, the one meg and two meg boards don't give you those extra bits to on read. Right. So it, it gets back the incorrect results and then starts really screwing itself up. And I also want to do a six-run optimization of it, too, and that's something I, I want to do on a couple specific games or, or lines of games. Like, Sierra's really enticing that way because the one set of programs will basically drive, you know, a dozen games. So if I can sure. optimize that for native mode 6309 and actually put some 6309-specific instructions there, I think the playability of those games will go up quite a bit because they'll be closer to what, you know, Tandy 1000 would have had at the time. You may want to look at uh, um, patching in support for the... Uh... Uh, SN76489 sound generator. Yep. Actually, I have already thought about that. Um, <laughs> yeah. John Strong and I had some discussions at the last fest about uh, the various you know sound cards that are coming out, and then what would be the proper way driver-wise to implement them. I and mean, we can replace the current tone command and maybe expand on it, but maybe we should do two different versions, like we were talking about for compatibility, because some basic nine games were written where the sound, because it halts the program, the game has been designed speed-wise and playability-wise, that that sound does have to pause you. So if we just offset a new driver that just does it in the background, all of a sudden you don't have that pause, and you run off the edge of a cliff or something like that instantly. (laughs) Right. So we were talking about, well, maybe we'll set a little flag or maybe make an alternate call that you can use if you want something, or even just like a GIP2 system call to uh, add some more global parameters. Maybe you can set, you know, either globally or on a process-by-process basis, you know, we want this one to run the sound in the background so we're not stopping or pausing or anything else. For certain games, that would work great. And then for others, we'll go in a compatibility mode type thing where it'll still pause properly so that, you know, you, the game is still playable. And then you know, and then doing extended calls, like, you know, for multi-voice and, you know, playing background music and switching, you know, what score you're doing on the fly or whatever. We sent we sent Boise a, a game master cart and uh, he uh, picked up a different project. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I go where my passions guide me. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I know John and I were talking about that at the at the last fest and and trying to come up with some ways to do it so that it's both compatible, 
and also future forward looking at the same time. And so that'd be cool. uh, we, we had some pretty good ideas on it. And I think because this is going to be driver based, we can make, you know, individual sound driven modules for the various cards so that everybody can use the same, you know, enhanced programs and, and it doesn't matter which card you got. Well, could you even have a virtual card that uh, just spawned the process that did the sound generation, uh, you know, manually or whatever? Um, you could do something like that. I know Nick was talking about experimenting with that even in, in Disk Basic for his upcoming game project. Mm -hmm. But with all of his moving and stuff, he's kind of on hold, hold on that. So Sure, sure. But abstracting it, I mean, that's the whole point of having the driver system is to abstract the hardware so you don't have to... You know, program for a specific register, a specific memory location. Oh yeah, Neil, you're still quiet, man. Oh, I'm enjoying this. This is a great conversation here. In other words, we bored you to sleep already, right? Oh, oh no, no, I'm very interested in this, uh, <laughs> and especially the seven six four eight nine. I mean, I, that'd be really cool to see that uh, up and running. You know, if those Tandy one thousand Sierra games can do it, I know the Coco can. Yeah, yeah I, was, I was actually looking at the Sierra sound format, try, trying to decipher it. Uh, there's different formats based, I think, uh, on different computers. Um, I'm not exactly sure how the Cocos is. Uh, it's embedded in those vol files. I know that. Yeah, yeah from what I've seen, it, it's it's got the capability. Was it three voice at once, and then the Coco picks the main front voice or whatever it is? Yeah, it, that could be uh, in inside of MNLN. Yeah, main line. I, yeah. yeah, in the main line, there is a um, there's a routines that tickle the uh, the sound register. The FF, I forgot what the PIA address is, but anyway, so it's there. You can see it, and of course, interrupts are masked, so you get this. The Coco basically freezes while the sound is playing. Yeah, it plays smoother than the standard tone command does. Oh yeah, yeah, because yeah. the tone command is still has. I think the tone command is not shutting off interrupts while it's. No, it's playing. basically just using the 60 hertz. Yeah, you know, yeah so you get this kind of oh, this really vibration kind of sound. Yeah, right. and the, the the tones in in the Sierra games are smooth because, like you said, they do shut the interrupts off. But the mm -hmm. uh, that's one thing that but kind of bogs me on it. If you're going to bother doing that and shutting off the interrupts, why didn't you go for multi-voice? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't understand why they did that, but put the lazy way out, maybe I guess. Or weren't yeah. familiar. I mean, what, looking through the rogue source code, you can either tell there's either multiple people programmed it or somebody was learning the 6809 as he was going because there's some routines that are just retarded. <laughs> you know, it's from a 6809 programmer's standpoint, and then you can see other routines. Oh, that's pretty smart. So uh, it could be it was you know done different chunks by different people, or if it was one person as they got through 40k of code, they eventually learned quite a bit. And there's little chunks of a bit of a C compiler printf in there too. Oh, really? Yeah. So you you think rogue was written in C? No, it was written in assembly, but I think the ports, I think most of the other bigger systems, like the Amiga and stuff, all were done in C. Yeah. So I think they, like the, the data files, I think, are definitely C-based, because you can see, like, percent signs with all the different, you know, C syntax. And they have a little mini interpreter inside of it for doing specific, like, percent D and, mm -hmm. you know, strings and stuff like that. So I think they took the C files that were created for the C versions on other platforms and then it implemented enough of the printf C functionality to cover what they needed on the Coco. And there's a vector table, kind of like Basic 9 has set up to call all these different functions, and it pushes all the stuff in the stack, just like you know the C compilers do, and then passes it on. So, yeah, it's got a little bit about it. There's also got the entire debug mode in there. There's some extra debug code that's never called. It was just, I think they just manually did a jump to it whenever they wanted to like do a register dump or something. Really? So the program is quite a bit bigger than it had to be for distribution. They left the entire debugging mode in there. 
Now, I think the Sierra, I suspect the Sierra code was based based on how it looks whenever it's in the disassembly. Have you verified that yourself? I haven't gone too much into it yet because I wanted to finish some of this other stuff first. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I suspect that's probably true. The guy that did that, by the way, was... Uh, oh, Chris Iden Chris or... Yeah, well, that's the name in the uh, in the in the I guess embedded in the in the binary. But the guy who did the disassembly some years back for the project was um, I think his name was Paul Zabelia. Okay, yeah. And I haven't seen him around. I don't know where where Paul is these days. But he actually did the um, he did the disassembly of those. But you know, as you know, disassembling C, it's 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 a little more uh, involved in terms of commenting because it's a little fatter code. Yeah, and everything's stack-based, and you got to yeah. sometimes do multiple yeah. levels deep and figure out, you know, <laughs> this is an RTS address in the middle of this stack. and Yeah. Yeah. So oh, G-Shell's like that, too, because when Kent Myers disassembled it for the version 2, yeah. or version 3 upgrade, uh, I mean, he went and optimized the malloc and some of the other stuff they were already familiar well, with. Was there it? an attempt to rewrite G-Shell and see, did someone do that, or am I misremembering? I know somebody had announced that we're going to try <clears> to do it, but I don't know if that ever went any further. See, the only one I've C-Lop, seen is the one that Kent did, which is a disassembly of a C program. Right, right. It's a disassembly and modification. But with CMOC, uh, I think that would be the, the way to go is to, you know, really go back to the, the model of using C for those multi-view programs like G-Shell, G-Calc, uh, G-Cal, and things like that. Yeah. It, it's too bad we didn't have the source because it would be nice to have the base yeah, to start no with. Doubt. No <laughs> Having doubt. to do it all from scratch. What uh, sort of work are you doing on uh, Rogue? Um... Well, I, I did a couple quick patches, and, and two of them, well, one of them is the cheat mode enable, which okay. actually is a hack somebody did years and years ago. Um, you just change a branch test instruction. Actually, what you're supposed to do is change the data file, because there's one byte flag, and it tells you whether cheat mode is enabled or not. Wow. And then I was also always annoyed with Rogue that um, they made this nice, cool graphics font for Rogue. And then it only runs on an 80 by 24 two-color screen. If you use any other resolution besides that, you use a four-color screen, you do an 80 by 25, nope, you're back to normal text font. That's right. So I've changed it so that if it's in any graphics mode, whether you're running on a 40-column screen or one of those mini 20 by 12 windows, it uses the graphics font for all that. Oh, that's awesome. That was my original impetus for it. Um, And the current Alpha 2 ease of use does have that patch in there. And then I just kind of got into it. And then Rogue for me has an historic value. Because it was the very first version of OS9 Level 2 for the Cocoa that ever got released. It came out, I think, a month and a half or two months before OS9 Level 2 itself came out. Right. And I remember on CompuServe at the time, Kevin Darling and Lamardo and a bunch of the others there were disassembling the crap out of it. Because it was the only thing with the windowing system hmm. with GraphInt and stuff. And these were pre-release versions, too, because the GraphInt and GraphDriv on the Rogue original disks is different than the OS9 Level 2 final release. So it was actually in a state of flux still at that point. But they got it out the door a couple months before the actual full level two. So it has historical value. Right. That, you know, for the nostalgia buffs, that that was how the entire disassembly of level two and learning how the whole system worked inside and out started. And then I also promised, kind of promised Brett Gordon, I said, uh, what size of a program can you run in, in, in Fuzzix, Fuzix, whatever you want to call it? Hmm. And he said, you can fit about a 60K because there's about a 4K chunk that they reserve for uh, their kernel you know, process bases, and I'm trying to crunch it down enough so you can fit that in there and you can port Rogue over to it, too. Oh, that'd be awesome. And if I rip the debugging mode stuff out, I'm pretty sure I can make that. I've already crunched it over a K so far, so. And then I got a whole bunch of stuff for G-Shell. I think, Boise, if you remember that doc I sent you back in, what is it, 2001 or something there? There's a few bits in there I, I still plan on doing, so. 
I don't remember what I did last year, let alone. Uh, <laughs> I still have a printout of it here, so. <laughs> the jog your memory. Well, yeah, that's good, though. I mean, I, th I still think, like I said, getting a C version would be just, it would be some work, but, man, the, the, the dividends would pay off once it was done. So. Yeah. And definitely for all the little uh, bits inside, like like the, the mini apps that come with it, definitely those should be done. See, I don't feel like disassembling GCAL or. Yeah, exactly. And then I still got to get back to my rescue and fractalist six three nine optimization project. I've been optimizing for six eight zero nine because that was another job. Or yeah, what are, program. You do, what are you doing with that? You alluded to rescue and fractalis. Can you tell us what's what's going on with that? Well, I wanted to speed it up because I mean it's a decent three D game, but it's a little slow, and it's quite a bit faster than the other eight bit machines. Even it's six five zero two. I mean that's a that's a burn my saddle as six five zero two <clears> games <throat> outperforming us. You know, even if they have you know special graphics chips mm -hmm. and stuff. So. I decided I was going to go through. My first plan was just to optimize for 6309. Um, but then I was taking a look at the code, and it, once again, this was a project that had a hard deadline of six weeks. And Ken Rogaway, who I did briefly get in contact with, oh, said it really? took him six weeks to do that one. It took him four weeks to do Coronas, which was based on a slightly later version of the same rough engine. Wow. And he'd never touched a 6.09 before in his life. Wow, that's, that's Did impressive. he write that in assembly, or did he write it doing Totally assembly. assembly. Wow. Oh, wow. Now, he wasn't experienced 6502, 6510, et cetera. So, I mean, it's, he's, he had experience, you know, experience in a semi-language, but he'd never touched 6809. He quite liked the chip, actually. He was quite, you know, fluorescent in his praise of it. Um, but he, he, he admitted it was rushed because they had a hard deadline to meet. And I, I've, I've, I've crunched that one down. I can't remember how much I've crunched in size-wise, but um, David Ladd's got a video running under VCC where he shows stock OS9 running rescue on the left, 609 optimized version running on stock in the middle, and 6809 running under Nitrous 9, 6309 on the right. And it's basically about a 10 to 12% speed increase across each of those chunks. Huh. So on native mode right now, it's running about almost 25% faster already. Wow, that's and even on the 6809, it's running about 10 to 12% faster. And I'm not done optimizing it yet either. And I haven't what, put what any are, specific 639 code in it yet either. What are some uh, of the things you saw that needed optimization? Um, well, both Rogue and um, Rescue, I think because they're used to the 6502 where you have to do weird things to, you know, access more than an 8-bit range around where you are. Mm -hmm. um, they do a whole bunch of extended addressing and extended 16-bit uh, indexed mm. offsets all over the place. Even if the code it's pointing to is, or the data it's pointing to is like 10 bytes away, they sometimes use a 16-bit offset, and that's a penalty of like an extra four cycles per instruction. Right. Um, Rogue in particular, they don't use direct page at all. Yeah. So it's always using extended addressing. There's not a single, I think there's a very brief little bit of DP right when they first try to copy the parameter string over when you launch it, and that's it. And direct page saves you about a cycle per instruction. Yeah. So I've been doing that on, on both of those projects, um, is, is, is adding indirect page. In, in, in Rescue's case, there's certain chunks of the code dealing with different parts of the 3D rendering and stuff that it stays in this routine for a long time, and it's accessing this particular chunk of RAM. So I just change direct page to map into there. So that whole routine or set of routines runs faster, and then it pops back to whatever it needs for normal. And in Rogue, I'm still deciding where I'm going to stick that in there because I'm probably not going to change it on the fly like I'm doing on Rescue. Uh, probably just pick one or two spots, like well, all the player data, for example, that gets checked constantly. 
But right now it's all extended addressing. I mean, that's most of the 1K plus shrinkage too is just, you know, fixing up things, moving things around. Like they put a table, they only access once and they shove it 4K, you know, further down the line in the program. And it's like a five byte table. So I just moved it closer and all of a sudden now it's using 8-bit addressing and, you know, shaving three cycles off per access in a loop. Well, you know, if anything, what it sounds like is we ought to <laughs> cut this interview short and let you get back to work so you can do some stuff for the community. <laughs> hey, what are you doing talking, wasting your time with yeah, us? That's right. That's get, right. Get off of here. <laughs> um, I, 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 I'm assembling the programs in the background at real Cocoa Speed, so it's been busy the whole time. Oh, so there you go. <laughs> they got some time. We're like you're not standing on top of your chair with a sword uh, dueling your office mate, right? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, Curtis, um, then, um, well, tell us something we don't know. Tell us, um, you know, what's your uh, hopes and dreams here for the cocoa world, or um, what do you want to be when you grow up, that sort of thing. <laughs> I want to be 16-bit when I grow up. <laughs> um, well, just what just more we... the enthusiasm, like the enthusiasm that's come the last few years. I just want to see that continue. Whether it's programming, using, whatever. Yeah. That's, it's always that's the more, main thing. It's always more fun when you have somebody to consume or at least talk about what you've done. Um, you know, if she, we can all do our thing back in the closet or whatever. Uh, well, that's a bad term, but we all do our <laughs> thing in our, in our basement. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, just have our own little celebrations to ourselves. But it's always nicer if you got a buddy they can at least – Say, hey, that's kind of cool. Hey, you just wasted your weekend on that stupid thing, but that's kind of cool. <laughs> well, to be honest, Bill and I, we, we used to have discussions when we were doing Nitrous 9 originally because we worked together. And sure. our work system was our main test bed. Like if we weren't busy printing, it was like, well, let's do another assembly of the kernel. And we would sometimes get into heated arguments over, you know, semantics of how to do something or what routine we thought would work better or whatever. And sometimes it got quite heated. Uh, to the point where I remember once one of the pressmen came back and there was a big cement wall between us and the press area. And they were running an, an eight-color web press at full bore. And they heard us screaming at each other over top the press. And they literally <laughs> thought they were going to come and have to break up a fist fight because I thought that was going on. It was just us arguing about, you know, what routine would work better in this one particular case. <laughs> so, That's pretty funny. But, but, yeah, we had lots of discussions. And, and that both rivalry and camaraderie at the same time, Sure. You had, it's you kind of had to prove your point and 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 you know prove that your idea had merit. Yeah. yeah. And I, I've heard some other you know programming um, companies and stuff work the same way where it's it's competitive even within. Yeah. And that actually so, spurs people on as long as you don't let it get too out of hand. Right. It, it spurs them on to better themselves and better what they're doing. Like you're going, you know, well he just came out with a routine that works a little bit better than yours, so we're going to pick his. And then you go, well I can make mine better then. And, you just, and it actually it, it eggs you on to do better in a faster time frame than you would have normally. Yeah. So you know, it's like having instant feedback. Yeah. Code Marlette talk. I, yeah, Marlette and I, uh, when we worked together closely on SuperDriver and some other Cloud9 stuff, there was a that kind of a relationship, you know, where we, you know, one of us would want something, the other one would want to do it. So we, you know, basically him and Hall and, and, and get him pissed off to the point where he would just say, okay, I'll do it. I did the same thing. It actually made our work better. Yeah, it did for uh, me and Bill too. Cool. Well, now you've got to go and figure out how to uh, take off uh, Stevie you know, to uh, <laughs> <laughs> do uh, improvements to, to to the shows or whatever. And, uh, <laughs> 
think he's got Steve Bjork helping him with that side of things. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> well, somebody will end up mad, that's for sure. <laughs> um, I prefer to call it discussions, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, yeah, so then, um, Curtis, well, what have we done to ask you? Uh, what, what's your uh, what's your secret? I, I did do some other programming in OS 9. Earlier I did some stuff before I got into Nitro 9. I did like a, a, a machine language unzip utility, and I did some other little quickie utilities too. Um, cool. I did get some stuff published in some of the um, books that Rainbow did for the adventure and simulation contests, stuff I did oh. basic back in the earlier 80s. Those two, cool. and those are on uh, the game website too for download. If anybody wants to really laugh hysterically at how badly I used to program. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, uh, always, it's always humbling to look at your old code, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, humbling's the right word. Sure, yeah. <laughs> embarrassing would be closer, but um, yeah. I mean, I've, I've I've been programming on since I think well, '78 was the first year I ever got to touch a pet, and we had one that cycled through our public school system. I mean, you, every school had it for two weeks. One pet. And like most of the students there were like, meh, I got an Atari you know, VCS at home. What do I want to see this black and white thing? But yeah. a few of us really fell in love with it and it turned into careers. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, well, let me try one more here. Uh, so my impression is that Saskatoon is uh, a bit remote. Is that correct? Yeah, we're, we're in the middle of the prairies. Um, I mean, we're about 250,000 people, so it's a decent size. Okay, so it's a decent size town. I was going to ask you, know, what do you do for fun out there or whatever, but I guess you're still going to ask, what do you do for fun? <laughs> Not freeze. Um, <laughs> no, we we got enough stuff here. There's lots of stuff to do. There's like live concerts and stuff, and sure. got, you know some sports teams. We've got a professional lacrosse team that actually has won the championship recently. We've got a football team in Regina. It's a two-and-a-half-hour drive. Um, so. Obviously, hockey's big up here, so I, I remember playing it a lot as a kid. Until I got into computers, and then I kind of gave up in physical <laughs> anything. But <laughs> well, at least you're still skinny. <laughs> well, I'm working on that too, unfortunately. <laughs> All right. Well, it's time for another coordinated co-co-co-co-co-co conference. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, has anybody else got any other questions? Your Twitch TV appearance uh, appearances with Leo Laporte. Are you still doing those or, or not? Um, I haven't been down there in a couple of years now. Um, okay. I mean, it was basically basic vacation time, and I've guested on on the uh, news tech news today show during one of their uh, ones where they picked four of the audience basically to come and guest on a Christmas special. Um, cool. But no, I, I mean, to be honest, my my work life has definitely gotten busier. Like when I started the company after the old ticketing printing one, I was in uh, shut down. Uh, work started off fairly slow, so I had some time for vacation. Unfortunately, no money to do it with, but um, now work definitely this last year or two. I mean, sales have been going up about 12%, 13% a year, so it's definitely getting busier, and I'm having less free time to do that. I still pop in their chat room once in a while. I still listen to the shows, but uh, not as actively involved as I used to be. That and Steve's That's taking it. up all my damn time. But Yeah. <laughs> I, I, um, one, one regret. I, I will tell you one story. I, I did take Coco's down to Leo back when he was still in the old – well, the middle building, I guess. And we had a, a bit, Ustream used to um, kind of live tape everything, including between shows. And you can get them on the, uh, could could have gotten them on the web. And I took the Cocos down there, and then Burke and I actually set it up, so we hooked it up to the TriCaster. And we actually had Coco running a little twit demo I wrote in BASIC 
um, <laughs> on every single screen in the entire building. And we filmed that. And then Leo came out in between shows just after security now. And he actually came and he, he remembered the Coco a little bit. I mean, he knew a little bit about it on his own. And I showed him some programs and, you know, kind of gave him a bit of the history and stuff on it. And that was a pretty cool thing they had. And then, well, maybe it wasn't Ustream. It was oh, Justin TV. Um, when Justin TV shut down, they deleted all that stuff. And I didn't grab it first, which I should have because mm-hmm. that's totally gone now. I do have a couple snapshots from it, I think, on my Google Plus page. Yeah. But the actual interview with Leo, you know, using the cocoa and, and talking about it is all gone, unfortunately. That's one big regret. You can't get that over on Coco TV? <laughs> well, if I'd grabbed the video and downloaded it first, I might have been able to. But no, I didn't. I didn't think about it. Like, I remember I heard about that uh, they were shutting down Justin TV, and it just never dawned on me that, you know, all the content would disappear at the same time. I just thought, right. you know, they'd sell it to somebody else and somebody else would carry on. But nope, it was all wiped. <laughs> oh, well. It's a shame it didn't happen at uh, PinFest 2000 because somebody would have video of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember that when I was yeah. doing my TC9 seminar there, you were sitting right close to the TC9 in there because Nick sent me a copy of the video for that. So <laughs> I had met you before. Yeah, yeah, well, uh, met you there. That was my first Coco event. <laughs> oh, was it? I thought all you guys were crazy up until the <laughs> <laughs> Now you know we are, but yeah. Well, that was uh, after after the Pinfest shut down. I said, "Well, I better start going out to Chicago because they're not going to do those uh, Coco Fest forever." <laughs> so far, I've been wrong. Oh well. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm really glad I made it to Rainbow Fest a few times before it folded, though, because that was that was a whole other level of show. Yeah, that's that cool. cool. Not Comdex level because I've been to that too, but yeah. Oh well, and uh, and now we have proof that John was actually at Penfest. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we got that one picture of him carrying that box, but mm-hmm. um, you can actually hear him asking me questions during the TC9 seminar that uh, Nick sent me a copy of the video for. So, oh, that's oh, cool. 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 Oh, they weren't too stupid. <laughs> no, no, my answers were, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I had right. my mullet then, so that didn't really go well. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, um, I think we'll probably draw this to a close in. Uh, Curtis, definitely thank you for joining us. It's been a, a good discussion and um, uh, been a lot of fun, some good reminiscing and some good information exchange. Yeah, um, thanks Thanks for having me on, even if it's uh, dead last out of the hosts on the other show. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. Like, like I said, uh, you saved the worst for last. So. <laughs> Quality is not always reflected by order. Uh, <laughs> So, anyway, well, um, like I said, uh, thanks uh, for joining us. It's, uh, I think it's been a good interview. The International Color Computer Weather Service has issued the following alert for Earth's Northern Hemisphere, above approximately 26 degrees north latitude. Effective until 8 p.m. May 1st. Cooler temperatures combined with fewer daylight hours have created conditions conducive to indoor activity. Seasonal affective disorder is a type of depression that typically occurs each year during fall and winter. To combat these and other possible effects, hibernate indoors and use a TRS-80 color computer, MC-10, Dragon, or similar color computer, as frequently as possible. Exposure to colors such as green, magenta, buff, cyan, 
and orange, have been shown to offer relief from the effects of seasonal affective disorder. Owners of color computers should go to a basement or interior room in your home or business where you keep color computer equipment. Seek shelter now. Once in place, use your color computer to program, play games, or otherwise pursue creative activities. You may enhance your experience by reading computer publications and manuals, listening to vintage computing podcasts, soldering electronic parts to printed circuit boards, employing oscilloscopes, voltometers, logic analyzers, and other tools. Interacting with other color computer owners can also be useful in combating seasonal affective disorder. Planning and creating projects or demonstrations to exhibit at Coco Fest and Tandy Assembly is also strongly recommended. The International Color Computer Weather Service has issued this alert. Alright, welcome back. I'm John, and this is our tech segment for this episode. Uh, this time we're going to do a little talking about something, well, it's a, you know, a bit of a ringer, shall we say. This is talking about a product that I'm actually the, the um, producer, designer on. Um, it's, of course, it's not actually a product unto itself per se, but it's more of a, a technology to enable people to produce uh what are hopefully better games. <laughs> so anyway, if you haven't guessed by now, um, I'm talking about what I call my Game Master cartridge, uh, or Game Master cart. It's funny, I feel like I've been talking about uh, this for forever, and even looking back, some of the um, the earliest video d- demonstrations I posted go back to last January, so I've been talking about it roughly a year. And yet, we still seem to <laughs> see a lot of people who say, Oh, that's neat. What's that? Uh, what does it do? Why Why would you do that? That sort of thing. So, I don't know. Some of those people may just <laughs> not pay a lot of attention anyway. But just in case, uh, we'll, we'll try to cover it, or I'll try to cover it um, more fully in this segment. So, what are we talking about? Well, quite literally, uh, you know, as many of you listening will know, I enjoy games on cartridge, uh, which is, a, you know, in its simplest form is a ROM cartridge, which is a little piece of the printed circuit board extension that plugs into a connector on the side of the Coco and extends it with a ROM chip, <laughs> which is a read-only memory that contains the code for a game. But since what you're literally doing is extending the circuitry of the color computer, that cartridge can be more than just a ROM, and of course we all know that because we've seen floppy disk controllers and sound cards and, you know, the XY adapter <laughs> or whatever, so probably not conveying anything really there new to you, but my point being that games can can um, have uh, or can make use of resources that simply aren't present on the color computer to begin with. And so one thing that other contemporary systems did to resolve similar problems in their cases was to add hardware on the cartridge. That's what we're doing here. So, because everything needs a name nowadays, and because, (laughs) well, uh, I've called this the Game Master cart. Uh, Some people have been calling it the 
Coco GMC, I pretty much try to call it just a GMC because I think Coco sticking Coco on the beginning of every name for the, for the products for the color computer gets a little old. If you want to call it the Coco GMC, you go ahead. Anyway, so it's a cartridge uh, circuit board. It's not a game unto itself. You can put whatever game on there you want. Uh, but it is hardware uh, that contains, um, well, the hardware expands the ROM addressing uh, that's available, so you can put a bigger game on the cartridge, and it includes a sound chip so that you can make better sounds. <laughs> like I said, this is intended to be packaged as part of a game, so you're not really buying the Game Master cartridge per se, you're buying the game, the game's delivered on the Game Master cartridge for the better experience, and that enables the game to to know that it's got certain hardware available and not have to worry about trying to adapt to exactly what variation of things you have in your system or don't have at all. So with that said, an alternative that is plausible, or some variation of which is plausible, uh, is it can be used um, basically as a standalone cartridge or a standalone sound card. So basically, you would just uh, either ignore the uh, the ROM, <laughs> um, basically have no ROM in there, or a ROM that maybe stays out of the way most of the time, or possibly a ROM that actually has some kind of, uh, say, chip tune audio player on it or something like that, uh, and then drives the hardware. Uh, just for the purpose of playing music, like a chiptune player or, you know, whatever other kind of music uh, output you might ever want. So that's an alternative. It's not really what the card is designed for. Like I said, it's designed to be a delivery device for games. <laughs> so why did I want this in the first place? A year or two ago when I started thinking about this sort of thing, I'd already been delivering new PCBs or new game cartridges wrapped in plastic. Uh, I thought it was a great thing. I still do. Um, but, you know, there's always those naysayers or negative people out there. And there's uh, one of the complaints that uh, several of them echoed was, um, well, that's great, but if you're going to deliver a game on cartridge, it can only be so big. So, well, that's sort of true. I mean, you're going to have a limitation at some point. Um, but it doesn't have to be as small as you get with just the standard hardware. So one of the motivations of delivering a new game cartridge was to overcome the limitations. And the, the standard way of overcoming address size limitations uh, on the computers of this area, or maybe computers of all areas, <laughs> is through something called bank switching. Uh, which basically treats each chunk, chunks of memory and, and calls them banks. Um, I'm not really sure where the term comes from, uh, but a bank is like a, a block. or um, Well, I think we all understand the term bank. So we'll just say yeah, it's more than one bank of memory. Instead of having the single bank of memory hanging off the card slot, you basically use the circuitry on the card to divide it up into multiple banks of memory. And then have a mechanism so that the address coming into the card gets routed to the appropriate bank, which has the nice effect that if you have a maximum size for addresses coming into the card, however many banks you can put on the card, well, that multiplies the maximum size of memory on the card uh, by that amount. So if you start off with, say, uh, 8K or 16K of 
maximum address space on a card and then you put in hardware for four banks well now you can put up to 64k of addressable memory on not all at the same time you have to select each bank individually as you're accessing it but uh, it's a way to deliver 64k worth of program and data um, and that's exactly what we're doing here is um, we've got a, the, the game master card as it currently stands uh, uses uh, a bank switching circuit that was uh, published by Greg Zumwalt in the June 1990 article of uh, Rainbow Magazine. I think it's called Breaking the 32K Barrier. Anyway, he describes how the bank switching works on a couple of games he did, uh, Predator and Robocop. And so we're using the same mechanism here. Like I said, our maximum is 64K because that's the uh, biggest... Uh, that's what you get from a 27C512 EEPROM, which is a 28-pin uh, EEPROM. I think there's the largest capacity 28-pin EEPROM. Uh, we could easily go to a bigger EEPROM, uh, go to 128K or more, and we might do that eventually. <laughs> but uh, let's let's see if there's a, actually a need for games uh, of this size first. Uh, so there's your challenge if you want bigger games or bigger EEPROMs. Uh, capability on your game cartridges will show me that you can use what I've got now. Um, so anyway, that's part of it. Why did you know? Why did we need a new circuit board for games? <laughs> but the um, probably the bigger thing here is we wanted to, or I should I say, but <laughs> I wanted to expand the quality and availability of music in games. And as most of us probably realize or know whether we realize it or not, but most color computer games don't have, either have no music at all or they have music at the intro or the ending, um, but little or nothing while the game actually plays. And there's a few exceptions. Uh, Grappler is one. Um, Farfall actually is one. I get a few complaints about the tonal quality of Farfall, but it does play music during the game. Um, but there's not many others. And so, the reason why, of course, is that there's no actual, well, the sound hardware on the Coco uh, is such that it requires the CPU to be involved uh, actively to play any music. And uh, not just not just selecting which notes to play, but actually selecting or forming the wave pattern, uh, either with the one-bit output or with the DAC output, but one way or another, the CPU has to decide you know, when the waves go up and when the waves go down. And so when you're playing music, that happens quite a lot. <laughs> so it takes a lot of CPU time to make the music, which takes away from gameplay. And that's why you, and it also makes it difficult to do both music and games and at, at what feels like at the same time. So uh, that's why you don't see many games with in-game music on the Coco. And so we, we've kind of tossed this around for years, and it's pretty well established that people think that it would have been good if Tandy had included a sound chip. Steve Bjork says that that was his big demand uh, of when the Coco 3 came about, was he really wanted a sound chip. Uh, Mark Siegel, I, I think, uh, agrees with that history and says, well, instead, uh, for cost reasons, we can't do the, uh, uh, the sound chip, but... Uh, we did give you a better inter interrupt handling structure, <laughs> which 
you know, it makes up for something. Uh, it is, but it is a little easier to do interrupt-driven software audio playing uh, on the Cocoa 3 than it is on the Cocoa 2 because of the way the interrupts work. Does it make it easy? No, it's still kind of difficult. <laughs> but and this still takes up difficult or not, it still takes up CPU time. But it is there. So many of us acknowledge that there needs to be some better sound hardware on the Cocoa or at least for, for many games that would be preferable. There were some alternatives that were produced by Tandy back in the day that you may be thinking about. There was one called the Orchestra 90 uh, pack, uh, which um, the Orchestra 90 software is really cool if, you, if you're if you a musician or, or want to deal with uh, what, what is effectively sheet music. Uh, you can do really cool stuff. But the hardware itself on the Orchestra 90 um, is not really all that different from <laughs> what's already on the Coco. Uh, instead of a 6-bit single-channel DAC, you get two 8-bit DACs. But that just means you have to process twice as much data <laughs> in the same period of time. It can sound pretty good, but um, it doesn't really resolve the issue. Uh, if you want to learn more about the uh, Orchestra 90 hardware, you might want to reflect back on uh, the tech segment in episode 10 of the Cocoa Crew podcast. Um, there was another option uh, available from Tandy called the uh, Speech Sound Pack. The Speech Sound Pack has a, a couple of pieces of hardware on there. Uh, two of them more interesting than others, I guess. But One was the uh, AY38910. I think it may have been an 8913. They're, they're programmed the same in terms of software. But anyway, it, uh, it was a sound generator that was using a lot of hardware, and a pretty good one from the, from back in the day. Uh, in, in addition to that, there was also a uh, well, SPO256 speech processor. And then, uh, <laughs> to save on address space or whatever, there was also an early version of um, the PIC chip, which has become more famous uh, since then in, term, in the microcontroller world. But uh, so anyway, they have an early version of the PIC chip uh, on the board that actually handles communications with the uh, 6809 on the, on the COCO. This saves you uh, some address space because, you know, the AY38910 in, in particular uses up, what, 19 address slots or something, uh, 16, it's a lot. I'm not sure how many the uh, SPO256 uses, uh, but, it, you know, between them, they do use up a lot of address space. That probably doesn't excuse the, the design, um, especially because uh, the pick makes it really slow to program the speech sound pack in terms of trying to drive music. A lot of music players for chiptunes are based on register dumps, and they just update a register, uh, all the registers on the chip on a regular basis. If you try to program the speech sound packs sound chip that way, it basically just won't keep up. <laughs> and so you have to figure out how not to update it that regularly if you want to play music on it at all. Um, now, there are some neat tricks uh, on, that on that card where you can... Uh, preload music into some buffers and, and trigger the buffers to play kind of uh, autonomously. So that's kind of cool. I think that's probably uh, Steve York and some others have done using the that for games in the past. But, I don't know, the hardware is a little bit hard to come by these days. And, uh, like I said, the design is questionable. It's a little bit hard to use. 
yada 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 not everyone has it <laughs> so uh if you do want to learn more about the speech sound pack uh again you might want to refer back to episode 11 the tech segment there uh episode 11 of the coco crew podcast anyway so we touched on that um there's a bit of a problem if you rely if you try to add hardware for playing sounds you have a bit of a chicken and the egg problem anyone who wants to play the game and use it has to have the hardware you know before they ever play the game the developer really needs the hardware too there are some ways around that and maybe the developers aren't as big an issue because you can uh, afford a, a few to send out to developers but really the people playing the game have to have the hardware and so until the game exists nobody's going to have the hardware and uh, then even when the game does exist not everybody will have played it and thought it was worth buying the hardware <laughs> so uh, you need to have the software for the people to have the to want to have the hardware, and then you need people to have the hardware for them to want to buy the software. Uh, so it's kind of a problem. <laughs> so my thought uh, was looking into this over time. I, I was looking around at different chips. There was some variation in the prices of, of the the kind of chips that we're looking at, the chips to kind of come from that period of time and do this sort of programmable sound generation. Usually some uh, tone generation, uh, some of which uh, have uh, a lot more capability of influencing the tone itself. Uh, King of all would be, say, a SID chip from Commodore, <laughs> but those are rather expensive to acquire. Even in onesies, they're pretty expensive. I was looking around at some of the other chips, like um, the SAA-1099, the uh, SN76489, uh, even the uh, AY38910 and the, its variants like the YM2149, they were kind of had reached a low enough price or were at a low enough price that I thought, well, maybe it's practical to put them on the, on the card with the game, and that way, if you buy the game, you know you've got the chip because <laughs> the chip's right there, delivered with the software. Uh, so it kind of resolves the chicken and the egg problem, but like I said, the um, the prices vary quite a bit. A couple of years ago, I was looking, and, and like the AY three eighty nine ten was, you know, regularly in the uh, ten dollar range. Uh, it looks like now that there's, at least at current times, it has become a bit cheaper, <laughs> which is good because that's a bit too expensive. Uh, even looking at it. Um, you know, the SA-1099, that was from the uh, the old Game Blaster hardware, or kind of a predecessor to Sound Blaster. That um, sells around $2 on eBay uh, for individual chips. Uh, the uh, the YM-2149 looks like it sells around a buck and a half. That's really not bad, but the SN76489, the chip that Tandy or ultimately used on the Tandy 1000 or the IBM PC Junior, it was where it originated, I guess. It's the T1K is a clone of the PC Junior. Anyway, those chips uh, actually run closer to 50 cents a piece, so that's pretty cheap. <laughs> so, uh, for 50 cents a piece plus um, a, a little extra circuitry, not much. Uh, I figured, well, you could add that to the cost of a, of a game cartridge. Not really affect the overall cartridge uh, price, but really affect the value. And so you'd have a game that would be a, a lot more fun to play. 
and uh, have hardware that would augment the software. The software would know it has the hardware so you wouldn't have to guess or do any special configuration to figure that out. So it seems like a good idea. Again, back to why the SN76489, uh, like I said, is about the, the cheapest one. It was had a historical tie to Tandy. And um, unlike some of the other chips, uh, it required a lot less support circuitry. There's, it didn't really need an external amplifier. It's um, just a, a resistor capacitor here and there for <laughs> for things. Um, the chip itself is kind of small, whereas uh, the um, like the the uh, YM2149 I think is uh, it's a, it's a wider, bigger chip. The uh, SN76489 is is uh, you know, quite a bit smaller, less real estate on the board, so easier to build the board. The board can be smaller, or you can put more stuff on the board. So it was a win-win there for me. <laughs> so there you go. So what have we talked about uh, so far? We've talked about the intro of the game card. What does it do? And kind of talking some about why it does it. At this point, I'd like to pause and uh, let's hear a bit of what uh, kind of music you can get from the Game Master cartridge.
right, so I think that gives a pretty good sample of what sorts of sounds you can get out of the Game Master cartridge. I think it's pretty impressive. Certainly a lot nicer uh, <laughs> to use than uh, having to write, throw in a bunch of code to do all that stuff. It leaves a lot more CPU time available, I assure you. So let's talk a bit about, uh, kind of take a little bit more of a technical deep dive. Let's start, uh, well, I'm looking now at the document I wrote for uh, helping people that want to program the Coco Game Master cartridge. Uh, starts off talking about bank switching, which we mentioned before. The bank switching is um, essentially identical to the technique described by Greg Zumwalt in the June 1990 edition of The Rainbow. It's what he used on Robocop and Predator. In the case of the Game Master cartridge, the maximum ROM capacity is 64K, and that's what you get with a 27C512 uh, EEPROM. Uh, the banks are divided into, it's not quite 16K, that's because uh, the hardware in the COCO will, will reserve part of the address range in the FF00 uh, to FFFF. The COCO 3 also, you have a similar kind of thing going on from FE00 to FEFF. Anyway, those are not quite accessible in the ROM, so you miss out on that 256 or 512 bytes from each bank. But it definitely extends the capacity quite a bit. <laughs> the selection register works really simply. There's just a register at uh, hex address FF40. This is the uh, spare cartridge select built into the cartridge port on the Coco. This would interfere with a floppy controller uh, or something like the Coco SDC. So uh, I figure that's not a problem because. <laughs> This is designed as a cartridge for games. And the whole idea is to pop out everything else and pop in the cartridge, or you know, you can use a multi-pack if you want, so cart select over to that one cartridge. The point being that your game is not using your floppy controller. So I think that's okay. Now, if you if I was selling it or if I was marketing it as a technology to be used as a standalone sound card, I would definitely want the addressing to be done differently. Some people don't seem to agree on that, but I think that would be an important thing to be different. Anyway, we'll talk about some of the alternatives a little bit later. Uh, <laughs> uh, that pretty much covers the bank switching from a technical perspective. Uh, you have the bank select register at FFRO, and you just write uh, the bank number in there, 0, 1, 2, 3. And that's all you get is four banks, 16K up to 64K total uh, on this version of the card. You could have a bigger bank capacity with a redesigned card that would work similarly, but we don't have that right now. <laughs> Alright, the next section though talks about sound generation. Like I said, the, the Game Master cartridge provides a uh, Texas Instruments SN76489AN sound generator. Do uh, feel free to look that up, and, and there's a Wikipedia article about it. Uh, this chip was. Um, uh, used in a number of uh, contemporary systems, the BBC Micro, um, the TI-99, it was used in the Tandy 1000, the Sega Master System, a number of arcade games. So, I mean, it has that kind of familiar <laughs> tonal quality of games uh, from that era. I like it. Let's see a note uh, here. When you write to the SN76489, it requires uh, 32 cycles of the onboard oscillator, 
worth of time for any write to it to complete successfully. So there's an oscillator on the card that's so it's a separate clock uh, different from what the Coco itself is using. What I'm recommending and what I've built, built so far uses a 4 megahertz oscillator. Depending on the speed you're running at on the Coco, uh, you may need a, a knob or two in there when you write out to the card. Uh, a couple of knobs are really not a big deal. Uh, if you're down to saving every cycle, sure. Um, but think of all the cycles you're already saving just by using the sound chip. <laughs> and I think we can afford a few to, to use as knobs when writing to uh, the chip. You don't have to use knobs for that matter if you can schedule some other instructions in there. Just as long as you uh, have that period of time in between the writes themselves, uh, it'll work fine as well. So, you know, whatever works for you. There's only a single address that's used for writing to the SN7649. Now the chip itself has um, you know, three oscillators, uh, three tone generators basically, which are essentially just square wave oscillators. And it has a noise channel, which um, doesn't make a tone. It kind of, well, it makes noise. <laughs> it kind of sounds like uh, percussion or something like that, like a snare drum. Uh, it's a little more complicated than the other channels, but you'll have to investigate that yourself if you want to program it. Uh, but the point being is there's more than one channel to write to, yet there's only one address, there's only one register address. And so what happens is the data that you write to the register part of that identifies which channel you're accessing. So it's kind of encoded into the data itself. Anyway, that one register address, it is, it's write only. You can't read back from it. Now, it's kind of a, a drag if you're trying to, to read back to, to detect if the chip is there or not, because there's just, I mean, there's nothing to answer. It just doesn't answer a read. So there's nothing, no, if there's a way to detect the chip other than try to turn it on and listen, <laughs> then I don't know what else you would do. To me, that's okay. Again, the whole point is to put it on a game cartridge and chip it with a game so you don't really need to detect it. But if you wanted to use it in a different application, you may want to figure out some other way to handle that. Uh, anyway, the value of the onboard oscillator frequency uh, is a factor in the values that you write out for the tone generators meaning that that if you change to a different onboard oscillator and don't change your frequency generator settings appropriately then your tone will not come out the way you want it <laughs> shocking right but that's what happens when we talk about variations of the card uh, that's a possible variation is you could build a card with a different oscillator if you do that then you'll need to account for that with whatever data you're using to program the sounds okay not a big deal okay when you want to write out to the the SN7649 on the GMC that is addressed at, at hex FF41 uh, again we already talked about the addressing and how this would conflict with the, the floppy drive controller or whatever it just is what it is but like I said the point being this is supposed to be a game cartridge it's not really supposed to coexist with other stuff on your on your massive awesome OS9 Coco system or whatever because <laughs> um, it's it's designed just to play a game. Okay, so I've got a section called System Notes here. Uh, again, to point out the address decoding uses the SCS signal. Um, normally that's used by floppy disk controllers or the SCC. 
Uh, if you want to use the GMC with such a card, it is possible if you're using a multi-pack interface. It's not going to work with a Y cable. <laughs> but if you use a, a multi-pack interface, you can reroute the SCS signal using the address at, at hex FF7F. And uh, you can route it back and forth. Uh, you can route it to the sound card when you want to play sounds. Route it to the floppy controller when you access the floppy. You know, whatever. Um, it just is something that would have to be done. Again, it's sort of outside the point of <laughs> how the card was designed. But it is possible. So audio output from the Essence 76489 does go through the sound signal on the Coco cartridge port. Uh, that means it's... Uh, if you want to hear the sound, you're going to have to route <laughs> the sound um, output from the cartridge port into the um, the RF modulator or, uh, you know, whatever audio output you're using on your Coco or Coco 3. Uh, there's a pretty simple uh, setup there that involves the MUX and, uh, and uh, the selections uh, signals from the PIAs. Uh, you may want to look at uh, the video done by Mike Rowan to get a little more information about how that works. It's pretty simple to run the selection. One other note here, uh, note uh, on the SN76489, for whatever reason, the way the chip powers on, by default, it enables all the oscillators. <laughs> and so, uh, if you're not uh, aware of that and you route... Um, uh, the audio to the chip without having done anything to turn those os oscillators off, you will get you know some noise. Uh, so when you're programming your game, it's advisable to turn the volume down on all the channels <laughs> before you switch audio over to it. So just for your own sanity. Okay, I've got a few notes here and playing composing tunes. Uh, you're basically on your own. You're gonna have to figure it out yourself. But, um, but uh, I will note uh, the. The chip was used with a variety of contemporary machines, the TI-99-4A, the Sega Master System, BBC Micro, PC Junior, Tandy 1000, I think I've already mentioned all those. The point being is uh, any tunes you find that were composed for those systems, you know, the data uh, that goes along with that, uh, and any tool that's used for the purpose of composing tunes for those systems, you should be able to adapt uh, that whatever data they generate ought to be able to use be used with the Coco and the GMC. So be resourceful and look around for uh, tools for composing for the BBC Micro, for example. You may have some luck. There is a file format out there for video game music that's called VGM format. Part of that format uh, identifies what chip the, the music data is for, and it has support in there for identifying data for the SN76489. The data file format is pretty well documented, and there are a number of uh, archives of VGM formatted music out on the web. If you want to look for for music that can play on the, the Game Master cartridge, go look for some of that and see if you can figure out how to, to get the data over. Also, there's a, a tool out there that I've become aware of recently called um, Deflamask. Uh, it's capital D-E-F-L-E, capital M-A-S-K. It says, Deflamask is a cross-platform tracker. runs on Windows, Mac OS X, and Linux for producing music for many sound chips and old-school game consoles slash computers. Um, so it, this uh, claims to support the SN76489. You may have to tell it that you're using a 4 megahertz clock or whatever si a speed clock you are using. 
Uh, for what it's worth, the BBC Micro uses the same clock speed for its SN76489, so you may be able to just say you're composing for the BBC Micro. Your mileage may vary. <laughs> Alright, well, let's see, there's uh, pretty well covers my technical overview and what you do to program the chip or program the device, how you use it. Let's talk a bit about possible variations of the device. So if you wanted to use the basic chip, but if you wanted to build it rather than as a game cartridge, but you wanted to build, say, a standalone sound cartridge, I would think that it would be advisable to use a real addressing scheme. Uh, in other words, don't use uh, the SCS signaling. Using SCS is kind of a cheat. <laughs> it it uh, enables there to be less hardware on the card, so that's a big plus. Uh, it makes the card cheaper, uh, but it makes it more difficult for the card to coexist with with other hardware. And so, like I said, if, if this was designed as a standalone card, and you're going to use this card with uh, uh, you know a lot of things, and you know basically if you're going to leave this card plugged in all the time, I think it would make a lot more sense to use a real addressing scheme, you know, a real address, <laughs> allocate an actual address for the, the card rather than just um, relying on SCS. And then you wouldn't have to fool around with any of the um, switching the slots in the MPI in order to be able to use it with uh, your, your uh, Coco SDC or whatever. So that'd be one variant. You could build the, the same basic card or, or uh, a version of the card with just a sound chip as a sound card, but you'd want to redesign quite a bit. So this is designed as a game cartridge, and so by default I've got the um, card wired up to auto start. That works great if you want to put a ROM card if you want a, pro a ROM image for a game on the cartridge that's expecting to auto start. <laughs> uh, but if you wanted to say use the the uh, the ROM slot for say um, uh, DriveWire or some other DOS style of ROM, then the uh, auto start mechanism doesn't work for the for DOS style ROMs. <laughs> so. If you want, if you were going to build a product based around that, uh, we could do a resmint of the design that disabled the auto start, and so that might be appropriate. Uh, you know, again, if you were trying to ship a sound card, which you may or may not change the addressing on for the for the sound chip, um, but then you could disable the auto start and pop in. Uh, you might even ship it with a drive wire ROM or something like that. Notice how I say you might do this. I'm not planning to do this, but these are options. And if you've got a great idea for a product, then we could talk about it. I could probably spin the design and help you out. But, you know, no guarantees. <laughs> um, let's see. So, another variation. Variations related to memory. So, you could ship uh, one with no, no ROM socket at all. Uh, no, you know, no place for a ROM. Again, this might be appropriate for a system-style sound card. You know, something that would be equivalent to... Um, you know, speech sound pack or orchestra 90 or something like that. That's an option. You could build one that's, you could make the card a little bit smaller if it didn't have a ROM on it. On the other hand, you could go the other way. You could put a bigger ROM on it, or you could put multiple ROMs on it. Either way, meaning you'd have more ROM storage. And so that would enable you to, to address more banks as well. The, the, the chip that's on it could do uh, quite a few more banks. The circuitry that's built in as it is right now, I'd say the, the ROM chip that fits on it will only do the four. But <laughs> anyway, you could put um, more ROM banks on there. 
You also could change if for some reason you didn't like the 16K ROM banks, if you wanted to use 8K ROM banks or 4K or whatever, it wouldn't be too hard to do a version of the card that had a different banking scheme. Why do you want to do that? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's more appropriate or more comfortable for programming your game to do the banking in 8K. It's hard to say, but uh, if you wanted to do something like that, you know, we could talk. We could have this kind of technology with a different style of, of ROM thing. So just don't say it's not possible. or <laughs> Don't say I'm locking you out of it, because I'm not. It's just a matter of having to redo the design if you don't like the choices that have been made. Okay, uh, variations related to audio. Uh, I already mentioned you could change the oscillator, the onboard oscillator frequency. So, like I said, I've been recommending 4 MHz. Apparently, uh, I think the Tandy 1000 used an NTSC uh, oscillator. So that's, uh, what, 3.579545 MHz. Um, uh, anyway, close to that. You could do a different oscillator speed. Some people complain about uh, the not being able to get to the lowest notes. Uh, I think it's uh, not as big a problem as some people think, but, you know, whatever. Uh, you could put in a different oscillator if you wanted to. You just have to source the parts and figure it out. You could change the output filter. The pretty basic output filter on the design right now. So I think it sounds alright. Don't really need anything different. But, you know, if you're a real hoity-toity audiophile, you might want to put a more complex uh, uh, output filter on there or change some of the values uh, for resistors and capacitors and that sort of thing. If you, especially if you were building a sound, standalone sound card, you may want to change to where there's a, an output amplifier so you could go um, basically make louder noises. Again, you don't really need one uh, feeding into the, uh, the cocoa itself. It seems to work pretty well, but you know, it's a, a matter of what you're really trying to do. If you did add an amp, output amplifier in particular, uh, you could add a, a headphone jack. You could, for example, add multiple chips, sound chips, so you could have multiple ch uh, sound channels, which might be done uh, in a left and right sort of fashion for stereo, out stereo output, or you could just add more channels all that are all mixed together, so instead of having three oscillators, you could have six plus a couple of noise channels, that sort of thing. My point being, I've got a card here, it's got a certain design decisions that have been made, I think they're reasonable, um, and uh, I'd like to see people try to use them as is. <laughs> but if you've got good reasons to uh, to want some of these variations, there are variations that are possible. And, uh, you know, I might be willing to entertain some if you have a good enough reason for why we want to respin the design. <laughs> so in conclusion, I think uh, the Game Master cartridge, um, I think it provides a useful technology for, uh, particularly for enabling music in the video games. You get a better sounding audio than many uh, software-only uh, solutions provide. Uh, you know, pure tones or whatever. By putting the hardware in charge of the tone generation, you use a lot less CPU time. And I didn't really explain that, but I guess. So, for example, typically, uh, if you're doing a generation of software, you'd have Something that runs pretty fast, uh, you know, several kilohertz kind of cycles that would uh, need to run and uh, actually flip bits to, uh, or change the DAC values or whatever to, to go up and down to make the actual wave for the sound itself. And then you'd have something else that'd have to run more in the tenths of a second or, or whatever kind of period 
that chooses which note to play next. So more like a sequencer. So you have the note generator and a sequencer. In this case, uh, with the hardware generating the notes, uh, you don't need any software note generator. And so you save all the cycles that you would have done generating the actual notes themselves. Now, these uh, sound generators on the SN7649, like many other chips, you know, you turn them on and they play that note until you tell it to play a different note. Uh, but that means you still need some kind of sequencer to run, typically during VSync or similarly timed uh, events. But by only doing the sequencing part, you're doing a few instructions 50 or 60 times a second rather than a few instructions thousands of times a second. So it should be obvious how that uses less CPU time. Better audio, less CPU time. I think that that's pretty much the whole case for the music. <laughs> um, oh, and you can do, obviously you can do multiple tones together, so you can play chords and that sort of thing, uh, which is a, a bit harder to do. You're going to have to use even more CPU time to do that uh, if you're having to do it in software. The Game Master cartridge also, of course, allows for bigger games on the cartridge because of the bank switching. So, very cool there. Uh, if we have games that need to get bigger, uh, we can do so. Because I've picked the SN76489, it's not the fanciest sound chip. Uh, you, uh, for example, like you can't do um, automated um, manipulations of the tone, uh, like with a, an envelope generator, like many of the other or not many, but some of the other chips have. Maybe many. <laughs> anyway, some of the other chips have that. Now you can still do some things. Um, it helps to, uh, to to manipulate the volume a bit uh, if you give a slightly different tone sounds or whatever. You can do that in the sequencer. So yeah, you give back a little bit of the CPU time you're saving by having to do a little more work in the sequencer. But you know it works out. And like I said, the hardware is a lot cheaper. <laughs> and so because the cheaper, because the hardware is so much cheaper, um, you can add the chip to the cartridge and have a relatively small effect on the cost of the cartridge hardware and like I said you can add a really big value so there you go the uh, the Coco Game Master cartridge big value for your game fairly small cost that probably covers everything I really need to say I hope you've enjoyed my talking here kind of went a little long but hopefully it's worthwhile happy cocoing Coco Forever, and of course, Go Be Retro. This is the Coco Crew Podcast Network. This is it, gang. The greatest Radio Shack value ever offered. The new TRS-80 color computer, featuring 4K to 16K of memory, 53-key keyboard, 16 lines of 32 uppercase characters, connectors for two two-dimensional joysticks with push-button switch on each, RS-232 serial I.O. port, 1500-baud cassette port. To get yours, buy a box of Gimme Crisp cereal. Then, with your name and address, send $400 in coin at a Gimme Crisp box top to Color Computer, Box 812, St. Louis, Missouri. If you don't agree that the TRS-80 Color Computer is tops, return it. We'll return your money. That's Color Computer, Box 812, St. Louis, Missouri. Welcome back to the Games Corner on Episode 32. But before I get into this month's segment, I have an MC10 public service announcement to make. A few weeks ago, I attended a Coco Talk After Dark episode, 
and someone called or texted in asking what the power adapter requirements are for the MC10 computer. I just want to clarify what the real voltage specs are because a few answers that were kicked around are definitely not correct, and I certainly wouldn't want to see anyone fry their beloved MC10. The real voltage specs are 8 volts AC at 1.5 amps. However, if you are like me and have a bunch of these computers and all somehow never came with any power supplies, well, you are in luck. You can use a Nintendo NES power adapter with it. The NES adapter outputs 9 volts AC and has the exact same polarity and tip size. The nice thing with this option is aftermarket NES power adapters are readily available due to the resurgence in retro video gaming. I'm on Amazon right now checking and I can see them listed brand new for under $10 including free shipping right to your door. So there you have it. No excuse now not to get your MC10 out and hooked up. You have a plethora of software to check out from Jim Gary, and I see he's also working on porting Forest of Doom over to it as well. That will definitely be cool to check out. As John would say, all right, all right, all right. Welcome back to the Games Corner. First of all, I'd like to say Happy New Year to everyone listening right now. This month I'm excited to kick off the New Year with this certain title. Not sure many of you heard of this rare gem. It's called Super Kid. This game was more known in the Dragon crowd as it was sold across the pond. I stumbled across this game by a fluke when I first got back into my Coco in 2005. One of the first coconuts I met online was Breeza from Australia. He was kind enough to point me in the right direction for building up a proper Coco rig back then. One of the things he did was send me a bunch of disc images with mixed software on them. And on one of the discs, it had the game Super Kid on it. So this was actually one of the first games I loaded right after getting back into the Coco. Super Kid was programmed in 1987 by Wayne Smithson and published by Quickbeam Software. It requires a color computer 1 or 2 and of course works on a dragon. I'm not sure how much memory it requires, but I'll take a guess and say 32K. Super Kid is a 2D side-scrolling platform style game. It is heavily influenced by the game Super Wonder Boy by Sega on the Sega Master System. It's not a total clone of it, but it definitely is very similar. I was impressed right from the start when the game loaded and it greeted you with amazing digitized speech and fantastic music that sounded like quality chiptunes you'd hear on a computer with a dedicated sound chip. When the game first loads and gets to the title screen, it says, Super Kid, and followed by the excellent music. Once the actual game starts, it'll say, Go get him, Super Kid. And if you finish a level, it'll say, Well played. Instead of me telling you about it, here, have a listen.
Isn't that awesome? Or maybe I'm just a sucker for low bitrate digitized speech. The music is also very impressive. And although you may not be able to hear it because my microphone doesn't pick up the real low frequencies, the music actually hits some real low notes. The graphics are also just as impressive. Glorious P-Mode 3 screens with side-scrolling action. The object of the game is to guide our hero through each level avoiding snails, dogs, and bees. That's quite a combo if you ask me. You can pick up a weapon to shoot the snails, but you cannot destroy the dogs. You need to jump over them. You also have a life meter and need to keep eating fruit along the way to stay alive. The other trick with this game is you can only move towards the right. You cannot go back. So all your jumps and firing must be properly timed. I find the best strategy is to always look ahead and see what's coming up next to time your next move. If I was to criticize anything about this game, it would be the lack of sound during the actual gameplay. There's absolutely no noise when you're in gameplay mode. But in all fairness, with the quality of the game, I doubt there was any CPU resources left for the programmer to add sounds during the gameplay. I'd imagine that side-scrolling takes a lot of power to pull off, especially on Coco 1 or 2 platform. Well, there you have it. A fantastic side-scroller game to check out and enjoy on your Coco or Dragon. As of the time of this recording, I do not see SuperKid on the Coco Archives website, but I do see it as available on the Dragon Archives website. I'm starting to realize between discovering this game and hearing John win all those cool Dragon cassette games from across the pond that there are some hidden gems we never got for our Coco. I'm going to take some time and research more of what was available for the Dragon that was never released here. Who knows, there could be more hidden gems like this game. Stay tuned for next month's segment. I just may have found another rarity to mention. Until then, game on. You're listening to the Coco Crew Podcast, a delicious adventure into the world of retro computer games and information. Mmm, featuring Tandy Color Computer. Well, we have reached the end of episode 32. I'd like to thank our host John Linville for procuring all the news articles each month and providing us with legendary tech segments. I'd also like to thank Mike Rowan for creating those amazing commercials and audio clips. I honestly don't know how he does it each month. He must have the infinite imagination machine. Thanks also goes out to Boise Pete for being a part of the show. I'd say you definitely moved up a level from just sitting in the corner and watching. Big thanks goes out to L. Curtis Boyle for lending us your time to record an interview with you. I found this interview very fascinating, especially hearing the story of how you implemented a full powerful Coco 3 setup in taking place of an aging PDP-11. It also blew my mind how the Coco setup was still in operation until the early millennium. I really do love hearing stories like this. Last but not least, we'd like to thank all of you for listening and your support each month. Please feel free to send us your feedback as we'd like to hear from you. Hope you all enjoyed this month's podcast. Until next month, Coco and Retro Forever. It's a blast from the past. Please listen carefully. Coco.
like there's no tomorrow. What is this crazy rock and roll music anyway? It's a blast from the past. Dance, dance, dance.